2: arms arms
3: Your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Konnichiwa, wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Namaste, shalom, kapasa, mi amigos, especially chicas, senoritas. Bonjour, bonsoir, Michelle, <laughs> mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports, so glad that you could be with us. I guess you could say I'm talking like this right now because the quiet storm, quiet storm. If you didn't recognize the legend, if you didn't recognize the man, the myth, the greatest of them all, Otis Redding, these arms of mine bringing in this podcast today along with my opening. The reason why I'm doing that is because I'm recording this for, you betcha, February 14th, Valentine's Day. I want to say a special dedication. I want to bring a special dedication to all the Valentine's Day cuties that we have throughout this world. Whether you're listening in Las Vegas, LA, DC, Maryland, Virginia, Bangladesh, Dubai, Peru, Brazil, wherever the beautiful young ladies are, old ladies, middle-aged ladies, whatever age group you fall into, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to this podcast today, Wendell's World in Sports and this is going to be a Valentine's Day theme, now I'm going to let the fellas know, don't be playing this when you should be taking care of your woman and for all you ladies out there, don't be playing this podcast, don't be listening to this clown named Wendell Wallace, don't be listening to him when you should be sharing the wonderful gifts that your man, that your woman brings to you. Don't do that. Don't neglect him, don't neglect her. You go ahead and you listen to this podcast. You listen when you're good and ready. But make sure, number one, if you haven't taken care of your responsibilities toward your lady, if you haven't taken care of your responsibilities towards your man, do this right now. Turn this off. Turn this podcast off and go ahead and make sure that your partner, your angel, your everything, your better half. You're 50-50. You're ball and chain. You're everything. You're my life, my wife, through all the pains and strife. My man, don't you understand? We've got the plan. God damn! You go ahead and you make sure that you are in the basking glow of love and happiness toward each other. You can listen to this some other time, but as of right now, you go ahead, if you haven't... Suffered if you haven't, excuse me, if you haven't uh, celebrated Valentine's Day yet with the one that you love, you go ahead and do that right now. Come on, come on, do it for me, do it for me, do it for a man who's not in a relationship right now. Do it for me, and make it the best goddamn Valentine that you could ever have, and then try to top it next year, and then to try to top that the year after next, so on. And so forth. All right, man. That's what I'm talking about. Welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports, NFL, NBA. Good deal with my Georgetown basketball team getting back after that embarrassing performance against Creighton on Tuesday. Good performance. A little spotty performance. They won. Screw it. So we'll go ahead (laughs) near the end of the uh, podcast and talk about that. Also, this being Black History Month here in the selfish, divided, racist, ignorant states of America, I'm going to be presenting special dedications to a athlete in the past in terms of the sacrifice that they made to make this world, to make this country a better place as we move forward. Today, I'm going to be talking about the great Bill Russell, who on Friday celebrated his 87th birthday so i'm going to be talking about that that's going to be my special dedication my profile pick for this podcast celebrating black history month to uh, talk about the greatness of bill russell so all of the things that we'll talk about right here on wendell's world of sports the valentine's day edition yeah 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 so let's begin the NFL news, the Houston Texans are making news. It has nothing to do with the trading of Deshaun Watson. Have they, they traded Deshaun Watson yet? No, not yet, not yet, not yet. The Texans released defensive end J.J. Watt Friday, granting his request. For those who don't know, I believe, besides Andre Johnson, I think that uh, Watt's going to be going down, as for now and for years to come, at the greatest player in franchise history. He was drafted by the Texans in 2011 with the number 11 pick out of Wisconsin. And all he did was win the defensive NFL Defensive Player of the Year Award three times from 2012 to 2015. He was one of three players in league history to win that award three times. Other accomplishments from Watt include Five times first-team All-Pro, 2012 to 2015, and then 2018. Five-time Pro Bowler, 2012 to 2015, 2018. Two-time NFL sack leader, 2012 and 2015. 100 sack club, unanimous NFL 2010s All-Decade Team, and the Walter Payton NFL Man of the Year Award winner in 2017. So this is what what Watt had to say in a video posted. To Twitter on Friday, he said that I have sat down with the McNair family, and I have asked them for my release, and, released, and we have mutually agreed to part ways at this time. I came here 10 years ago as a kid from Wisconsin who'd never really been to Texas before, and now I can't imagine my life without Texas in it. The way that you guys have treated me besides draft night, I mean, you guys booed me on draft night, but every day after that, you treated me like family. And I truly feel like you're my family. I'm excited and looking forward to a new opportunity. And I've been working extremely hard. But at the same time, it was always tough to move on. And I just want you guys to know that I love you. I appreciate you. I appreciate the McNair family for drafting me and giving me my first opportunity in the NFL. Always class, personified, good man. Don't know the man personally, but... I remember he was doing some commercials. Oh, man, I don't know what insurance company it was about where he was uh, uh, helping out folks take garbage out of lakes. And I know him and Kevin Durant and Derek Jeter were doing some stuff in terms of granting kids and granting people, you know, wishes in terms of those who were downtrodden at the time. Just a, just a good guy, man. J.J. Watt, from the outside looking in from what he presents, and I'm just going to go on the assumption that J.J. J. Watt it's just a fantastic guy. Never had any complaints from teammates or you never heard any bad stories or any, you know, people on set or the underlings or folks who aren't making the type of money that Watt is making or the minimum wage guys or the essential workers in this world. Never in any shape, way or form has any dirt or any, you know bad news has ever come from dealing with J. J. Watt. So God bless him. I hope that uh, he can uh, hook up with somewhere in terms of an NFL team and get his opportunity to go uh, win a championship. Maybe uh, Deshaun Watson can, Watson can join you. But uh, he had one year remaining of his contract. He signed in 2014. He was owed $17.5 million in 2021, but his salary was not guaranteed. So what's th- what that means is that he's now free to sign with any team. So you got teams that are interested. This is according to Ed Warner of ESPN there are approximately a dozen teams that have shown initial interest in Watt. He reported that the Pittsburgh Steelers, that should be the clear-cut favorite, the Steelers, the Cleveland Browns, Buffalo Bills. That should be another team that should be trying to move heaven and earth to get uh, Watt. And the Tennessee Titans are among those who are interested. If you Take a look at the Pittsburgh Steelers, right? I mean, you would think, what? Both of his brothers, younger brothers, played for that team. Outside linebacker T.J. Watt, he, they, he had, what, 15 sacks last season. Fullback Derek uh, Watt, they're already on the Steelers. It could be, He could be the replacement for Bud Dupree, who's going to be leaving via free agency. The Buffalo Bills should be also highly interested in anything that the Super Bowl showed us or the t- Tampa Bay Buccaneers showed us is that the only way, the best way, the most possible way, the most probable, plausible way, to beat The Kansas City used to be champions is to go ahead and put pressure on Patrick Mahomes. Um, Buffalo, their defense is pretty good. But as we saw in the AFC Championship, could use an upgrade at the linebacker and defensive end position. So when you take a look at the Bills offense with the QB wide receiver offensive coordinator combo that they have, That can play with, that can compete, that can keep up with Kansas City. Now what they need to do is to uh, solidify their defensive line and put a pass rusher on that line. And I think J.J. Watt could be that guy for the next one or two years to fill that void. So if I was the Buffalo Bills, especially, hey man, you don't, you don't want to wait. You don't want to sit there and talk about, well, you know, what's it going to be in the salary cap and everything like that. Nah, man, if you have an opportunity to win in the NFL, you go ahead and you take advantage of it right now. And you say 2024 and 2025, be damned. We'll worry about that when we uh, reach. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. As of right now, we need to get ourselves in position to win. You've got Josh Allen playing great, you have Stephon Diggs, a legitimate number one wide receiver, you have an offensive line, you have a strong coach, sure, the running game could be approved, sure, the tight end position could be approved, and like I mentioned before, the linebacking core for Buffalo could be approved, you have the uh, secondary that's uh, pretty well stocked, the defensive line, pass rush, linebackers for the Bills need to be addressed, you can do that through free agency, you can do that through the draft, but you can also, with a major upgrade, getting themselves a J.J. J. Watt. Again, not J.J. J. Watt to play the uh, right or left side of the uh, defensive end for the next five to seven years. I don't think he's got that much left in him, but in terms of being an impactful, above average, very good, pass-rushing defensive end, I think J.J. Watt has a couple of years left in him for that. And as I mentioned before, that's what the Bills need. Isn't that what any team really though, as we think about it? The Cleveland Browns are another team could uh, use the services of Mr. Watt. I talked about before, hey, look, um, Cleveland Brown fans, as I mentioned before, when you guys lost to Kansas City, you guys are headed in the right track. You guys are in the right direction. No more of this, oh, we're the Cleveland Browns, and we're snake bin, and our poor dysfunctional franchise, and we're going nowhere. No, no, no. You are no longer... The old Chicago Cubs of the NFL. We can't get it out of our own way, and no one wants to play where the mistake might. Like, no, no, that bullshit is over. You guys have proven this season that next season, 2021, you guys should be challenging the AFC North in terms of winning that uh, divisional championship, and there should be no reason why you guys should not be having a home playoff game next season. Baker Mayfield made great strides. You have a two ten of running back uh in uh, Kareem Hunt and uh, Nick Chubb which is the best in the league. Your offensive line is solidified the strong. Now what are you going to do to go ahead and solidify that defense? Resigning Denzel Ward or taking care of Denzel Ward would be a great opportunity, but the defensive line needs to be fixed. The defensive line needs to be taken care of. All you need to do in terms of whether you're thinking about getting yourself a J.J. Watt or getting yourself into the J.J. Watt sweepstakes is to go back and take a look at that game against Kansas City and take a look at third and third. what was it, third and 13, third and 14 late in the fourth quarter with these guys down by four or five points. And the backup quarterback for Kansas City, Chad Henney, ran for 13 and a half yards to put them in a position to go shotgun and throw a short pass on the right side to Tyreek Hill for the ball game. If you really think about that, outside of Tampa Bay, the toughest game that a um, toughest game that Kansas City had to play outside of Tampa Bay and the uh, Las Vegas Raiders was probably that game on the road where, for Cleveland on the road against the Browns. So you should take that optimism. You should take that glass half full type of. Uh, Resolute and take it in the next season And take it and use that as confidence One thing you need to do You need to give Miles Garrett some help Defensive end Olivier Vernon, he ruptured ruptured his Achilles tendon In week 17 this past season And plus he's going to be a free agent So there's a situation Where you could have some extra money To go ahead and get J.J. Watt So you could have bookend pass rushers Miles Garrett and J.J. Watt You don't want that? You don't think that's an upgrade? Again, don't sit there and talk about why would why would J.J. Watt want to go to Cleveland? Man, this ain't the 2003 Cleveland Browns. This ain't the 2014 Cleveland Browns. Hugh Jackson is not coming through that door. Kenny, Freddie Kitchens is not coming through that door. If they are coming through that door, they're not going to be going there to be coaching. They might be going there to say, hello, how you doing to maybe some of the uh, underlings. But as far as putting together a game plan, as far as having an outcome, having an impact on what happens happens on the field, that's not going to be happening. So let's kind of drop that nonsense. Let's not, let's not go backwards. We're going forwards. And the forecast going forward for the Cleveland Browns reads championship possibilities. You strengthen that forecast by getting yourself a J.J. Watt. So those are the teams. And of course, as I mentioned before, every team could make a reason why they could get themselves J.J. Watt, even if they're stacked along the defensive end. You could never have enough pass rushers, especially when we're talking about the game of football, where you never know every play could be your last play. Wendell's World and Sports Podcast, Valentine's Day edition. Here, it's Wendell Wall is with you. So glad that you could be with us. So when we're speaking about J.J. Watt, who was released by the Texans on Friday, what kind of player are they getting? He's coming off just the second 16-game season since 2015. He's dealt with several season-ending injuries since then. I mean, we're talking about a guy who didn't miss a game in the first five seasons. But, man, take a look at his last, I don't know, couple of seasons. He had two back surgeries in 2016, shattered his leg in 2017, and tore his pectoral muscle in 2019. And except for the season-ending injuries to the uh, shattered leg and the... And the uh, back surgery, I mean, the torn pectoral muscle, he came back from that after eight games and played in the playoffs. So you can't question the guy's heart. You can't cut, uh, question the guy's toughness nor determination. If you take a look at the uh, season he had in 2020, according to ESPN stats and information, he was ranked 15th out of 119th qualified pass rushers and pass win rate. Bingo bongo. He also finished the season with five sacks, two forced fumbles. In an interception that he returned for a touchdown. I think that was against Detroit, right? What was what it against uh, Detroit on Thanksgiving Day? So there's a lot of football left. If you're asking J.J. Watt to be the player that he was from 2014 to 2015, 16, I don't think that's fair. But I think the salary that Watt is going to get is going to be commensurate with his skills. Which is going to be to be a situational pass rusher. I don't think on a consistent basis he's a three down type of guy. But again, with that rotation, if you have a strong enough defensive line where you can start rotating their defensive linemen just to keep them fresh, he could be part of that line that could be very effective. Of course, depending upon what your defensive tackles are all about. So, uh, it's a win win. I know the Texans are starting to become a laughing stock of professional sports, this whole deal with first putting Bill O'Brien in the role of president. And he goes ahead and basically sabotages the future for the Houston Texans. And I know, I know, I know, I said before, I mean, I know y'all look at me like, damn, Wendell, didn't you just talk, talk about sacrificing the f- future to win now, man? What, so what the fuck's going on? Let me explain. If you have a shot to win the Super Bowl, <laughs> if you're a good enough team to win the Super Bowl, you go ahead and you mortgage the franchise in the future to win now. When Bill O'Brien made that move to trade his first-round pick to get Laramie Tunsil and then traded one of the best wide receivers in the game and DeAndre Hopkins to get a used-up, washed-up, no-longer-valuable running back in David Johnson and not even a first-round pick from it. No, no, that's not doing anything to put the Houston Texans into Super Bowl contention. So Bill O'Brien had to go because of those moves. He mortgaged the future for the present, but mortgaging the future for the present, he put a team together that wasn't going to be competing for a championship, no matter how great Deshaun Watson played. As you saw by that ridiculous, horrendous defense, I think was the last in the NFL in uh, defense against the run. So... Yeah, the Houston Texans say, hey, look, everything, it's all chronicled. It's all there. You know, cue the laugh track. No laugh track needed. Trading DeAndre Hopkins, the whole Jack Easterby situation, upper... Management folks leaving left or right. Those who were loyal to the organization. The hiring of um, David. Oh my goodness gracious! The man. I forgot his name. He's been in the NFL as an assistant for 27 years. Finally gets a chance, and now there's going to be. That's how inconsequential that he is. The fact that he's going to be getting an opportunity after 27 years to be the head coach of the Houston Texans, and then the plan is he is just a he is just a doormat. He is just a doorstep. He is just a bridge for Josh McCowan to cross before he becomes the next coach in a couple of years for the uh, Houston Texans. Is it David Culley? Is that the guy who's the coach for the Texans? He's so, like I mentioned before, I mean, with the situation that's been set up reportedly by Mike Florio to where Josh McCowan, who's the quarterback coach this season, he's going to make that move in the next year or two, to the offensive coordinator position. And then, as I mentioned before, once he gets the seasoning and he gets the experience, he will become the next head coach of the Houston Texans. So if you're the Houston players, why am I going to be listening to this guy who's the head coach now? You're nothing more than a glorified interim head coach. Why why do I need to uh, listen to anything that you have to say? Why am I going to be following you for? How long am I going to be following you for? One year, two years? before you're ready to hand the reins over, which was already agreed to for you taking the job. So look, all of the situations with the Houston Texans, ha ha, hee he, you should wear you should bow your head in shame if you're a fan of that team. But in this situation, the Texans made the right move. Concerning JJ. They had to let him go. Concerning JJ, I think the move with dynamite, That was weak. But the um the rebuild needs to happen and Watt should have the opportunity to try to win a championship in the two or three years he has left as being a player of consequence. Come on, man. You you know that. Sucks to see him go. He was awesome in the community. What he did during the uh, hurricanes was above and beyond. He's a good guy. He's a great guy from everything that I've seen about him. But in saying all those things, look, the Texans were 4-12 and 12 with both Deshaun Watson and J.J. Watt. So we're, we're not tearing down a team that's even looking to even sniff a playoff contention, let alone vying for a Super Bowl. So if you're not Super Bowl contending, in my estimation, you're always looking to rebuild. I don't want to be – if I'm a NFL football fan of any team, I don't care what it is, I'm not happy in the next five years if I'm going to be going – 10 and 6, 9 and 7, 9 and 7, 8 and 8, and 7 and 9. And then we'll throw in the next year and go 10 and 6. And in three of those six years or four of those six years, I make the playoffs and maybe win a game. I'm not interested in mediocrity. And especially if I have a really good franchise quarterback, I'm not interested in just winning 10 games a year. I'm looking to build. I'm looking to win a championship. I'd rather go 3 and 13. I'd rather go 2 and 14. Haven't you guys heard me yelling and screaming? You've heard me yelling and screaming about how much I didn't want the uh, Washington Snyder skins, the Rivera skins, to uh, win football games this season. Why? Because we had no quarterback. Dwayne Haskins, Alex Smith, Taylor Heineke. No thanks, I'm driving. Man, I don't need those guys in my quarterback. They ain't going to do nothing for me as a quarterback. um, I'm the guy for uh, Carolina last year who broke his uh, leg or his ankle, who was the backup this season, Ron Rivera's guy from uh, Carolina, whose name escapes me right now. I mean, those guys weren't winning you a those guys weren't winning you anything. Calbury? Murray? Cal Murray? I don't know. Those guys aren't going to be winning me anything. Man, get me a quarterback. And we've got someone like Trevor Lawrence right now who's going to be draft available. You damn right coming into the 2020 season. I was like, I want the Washington football team to go 0 16. I'm rooting for the Washington football team to be the worst foot, the worst franchise or the worst, having the worst record in the NFL this season. You're damn right. I was, I was unhappy and I was miserable and I was downtrodden when they, when those guys started winning games. And I'm supposed to be dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas because we won the NFC East with a 7-9 record? Big fucking deal! We did what? We lost to Tampa Bay, and now look where we're at. Picking number 19, no chance to draft draft Trevor Lawrence, or Zach Wilson, or Trey Lance, or Justin Fields. So what are we going to do? Beg and plead Seattle to give us Russell Wilson? Beg and plead... Philadelphia to give us Carson Wentz. Beg and plead Atlanta to give us Matt Ryan. Beg and plead New Orleans to uh, give us Jameis Winston, even though Jameis is a free agent. What are we going to do? Go back into the uh, season with Taylor Heineke as our quarterback? Maybe squeeze another year out of Alex Smith? That's that's supposed to get me excited? That's supposed to get me dancing on the ceiling like, um, like Lionel Richie? Come on, man. <laughs> So give me a break. I'm supposed to be happy like I'm Pharrell? Come on now. So, with you're your Houston, Texas, hey, let's just, for next season, well, Keevan Slovis, I believe, is the only quarterback worth a damn. So far, that Kuyper and McShay and those guys have been talking about in terms of quarterbacks who could um, turn around a franchise, help a franchise who are first-round uh, lookable for the 2022 NFL draft but if you're the Houston Texans man do Deshaun a a solid trade him you already released J.J. Watt and let's just bottom out start from zero get some cap room and just go for it but your organization is so dysfunctional what free agency of any type of uh, impact or consequence is going to be like yeah Houston that's what I'm talking about there ain't enough money under the salary cap for any team to, uh, to, to, uh, sign in terms of what the Houston Texans are presenting to a, uh, to a player who might change their franchise, who might be franchise altering. You had one of Deshaun Watson and because of incompetence and dysfunction that you couldn't do it. But you got to start somewhere, man. You got to, you got to give them hope. You got to give your fans hope. And if you kind of explain to him, like, yeah, look, we're just bottoming out. And we're going to start, and it's going to be a couple-of-year process, but we're going to get it together. Uh, This is Houston. This is a football town. And as far as sports franchises are concerned, Houston Texans has been through a tank-and-rebuild type of mode if you take a look at what the Houston Astros did, where I think one year they only won 59 games with a payroll. I think their payroll was so small that I think they were like eight or nine players who made more uh, personally than what the Houston Astros did. But they drafted, they drafted, they built, they built, and then they won the World Series. Cheating, you know, throw that in there. But still, they put themselves in a position to uh, win a World Series. That's what you got to sell with the um, if you're a, with the Houston Texas organization. Yeah, look, I know. In the last couple of season, we lost what. We lost Jadavion Clowney, DeAndre Hopkins, possibly, probably, could be, maybe, Deshaun Watson, but have faith. Yeah, I know Jack Easterby is a joke. I know he's a clown. Nick Casario, that's, Nick Casario comes from the philosophy of Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots. I'd rather trade a player or I would rather release a player one year too early than one year too late. And that's what he's doing. JJ Watt is not washed up. He's not done. He's not finished. But him on the Texans again, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? What's the point? What's the plan? Even with JJ, mutually agreed. I can understand it. For JJ, I've got two or three years left in me. I'm really going to be spending it here. Having the same type of year that I did last season? I don't think so. And the Texans are like, well, I mean, what are we going to do bringing you back? Are you going to help us win that many games? And instead of not having you here, we win three. And with you here, we win five. I mean, what's what's the point? What's the reason? So, they have to deal with that. Hey, man, for the Houston Texans fans, hang in there. I know it's bleak. I know that uh, things don't look well. I'm a Washington football fan, man. My owner is Daniel Snyder, for heaven's sakes. I've gone through two decades of losing. Embarrassment. Dysfunction. Scandal. Incompetence. I I, I know what it's like to be the joke of a fan base. I know what it's like. Believe me. I know it. But uh, you just got to keep the hope. You got to keep hope alive. And for JJ, hey man, live vicariously. If you're a um if you're a Houston Texans fan, live vicariously through him. Cheer for JJ if he goes to the Steelers. You know, become a quasi-Steeler fan or Bills fan or Browns fan. Your team ain't doing nothing. Your team ain't going anywhere. Why do you care? In fact, the organization should give you a reprieve should give you a mulligan, should uh, give you a, you know, out-of-jail pass if you want to uh, suspend your fandom for a few years until your team gets better. After the hell that they put you through, shit. As long as you keep buying their merchandise, right? It doesn't matter. So, yeah, giving up for J.J. Watt. Fabulous career, awesome career in Houston. He's still got a couple of more years left in him. For his sake and for the fans of Houston who are also J.J. Watt fans, everything he did for that community, community, let's hope that J.J. is going to have an opportunity to compete and possibly win that Super Bowl championship. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us.
4: Mm, mm,
3: mm. Ah, yeah. The Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, Dark Side of the Street. Song that was originally penned by a guy named Dan Penn down there in Florence, Alabama. That song was also a classic from James Carr. Percy Sledge recorded it. Missa Franklin, Miss Aretha Franklin, took that song and made it all her own. And this, here on the Valentine's Day edition of Wendell's World of Sports, with George truly, Wendell Wallace, talking about what's going on in the world of sports, but also have to give you a little Valentine's Day special dedication with the intro, outro music, or with the bumper music. Just for all of those who are, you hear the name of the song, Dark End of the Street. Tonight, or even the next day, Next month, next year, next decade. If you're gonna be meeting that someone special at the dark end of the street, make sure that they don't find you. But make sure you hold that woman. Make sure you hold that man and you hold them tight. You hold her tight because everything's gonna be all right. Your woman, your man might be at home with the kids, but that's okay. That's okay for the little bit of time that you have together, just you and her, just him and her, holding each other, loving each other, being free in the company of each other's love, passion, sex. You go ahead and you do what you need to do for that short amount of time. But make sure when you leave that woman and you leave that dark end of the street, you go back home and you take care of your kids. and You take care of that husband. You take care of that wife now. You hear what I'm saying? Yeah. Wendell's World of Sports. Valentine's Day edition. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. It's like therapeutic for me, man. You know, I got nothing to I got nobody to say this shit to. Even though I will say this, we'll move on with sports. Whenever I hear Dark End of the Street, like I said, love James Carr's version. Love Dan Penn's version. Love Percy Sledge's version. But Aretha, J- Aretha, Al Green, and Otis Redding can take anybody's song and make it their own more than anybody else. I mean, damn, when Aretha gets a hold of your song, it's over. It's over. Carol King, Simon and Garfunkel, all of these other, um, Dionne Warwick, whenever Aretha was like, I like that song, them artists must have been going, no! Come on, Ree! Damn, I was... I mean... I was kind of having a good time for the song. I mean, the song was kind of like one of my, like, things I could see or I could sing near the end of my concert. It was a this, that, and the other. Damn, now you're going to take it and it's going to be yours. You're going to damn steal my... You're going to steal my recording. You're going to steal this shit. But then again, if you wrote the song, you'd be like, hell yeah. Shit, when Aretha took Otis Redding's of respect, Otis was like, you yeah, know, I'm kind of upset that the girl stole my song, but guess what? All that money she's making from that song, Guess who's going to be getting part of those royalties? Because I'm the one who wrote it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So shit, Aretha, if I'm a song artist who wrote the song, and I made a little money off of me singing it, and then Aretha comes along and says, I like that. I want to take it and record it myself. I'm like, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Any song that you want retake take it. Take it, take it. Because it means the kids are going to be going to college. The dog's going to have a doghouse. I'm going to buy myself another car. I'm going to buy myself another another yacht. And I'm going to get another condo in another part of the world to go along with the five I have already. Fuck yeah, you take that song. And you will reach that Franklin the hell out of it. So, yeah, dark end of the street. I will say this. When I hear this song, it reminds me, not for the lyrics, but for the music, the voice. It reminds me of a person I used to work with. Named Shawneesa. She's uh, living right now. Her and her husband. Kid. Beautiful family. She's uh, down there in uh, Texas doing her thing. She's not singing though. This woman, which is a damn shame. I hounded, annoyed her for the longest. Saying, you've got it. You've got to put something on. I mean, you've got, I don't know, YouTube something. Facebook something. Social media something of you singing. Because your voice is absolutely gorgeous. Your voice is strong. Your voice is soulful. Your voice it's knocking it out at the park i'm telling you and she's a very attractive woman and she's sweet and she's wonderful and she's talented and she's articulate and she's all of those things i mean this woman right now should be like selling like 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 good i don't do, do you even sell records anymore i don't know but she should be she should be a a strong solid professional musician singer doing some good work and uh every time i hear aretha Sing a song. I'm not saying that Charnesia is like on the same par with Aretha. Nobody is, but it's like she's in the same stratosphere. And being in the same stratif- stratosphere means you're really damn good. And when she sings, when I hear Aretha sing this part right here in this song, man, it's like Charnesia, come on, you can do this. In fact, um, real quick, real quick, come on, I'll get, I'll get the sports just to the second. Real quick, this part right here. I'm telling you, that is Shawnisa right there, like minus 25. That is, I'm telling you, anybody in Plano, Texas, if you're walking down the street one day and you see this light-skinned woman in her 30s, looks like she's in her late 20s, very attractive and everything, go up and say, and find yourself a record executive, go up to her and say, sing, sing, have the record executive give that contract and just say, sing. And that woman can belt it out. Shanisa. I'm telling you, do it for your husband. Your husband's like, damn, do I really have to work forever? I mean, all I'm talking about is you just making one song, and, and guess what? I don't have the work. I can take care of the kids. I don't mind being Mr. Mom. Shoot. Being rich forever, getting that generational wealth, it's all based on, mm. I'm telling you. I used to bother her. This I used to bother her at work all the time, man, I tell you. She, <laughs> I'm quite sure. I mean, I... I have, I have so much love for her because, I'm telling you, she could take all of my bullshit and not either kill me, kill herself, or just go on some type of violent rampage. So, I mean, you know, she took all of my bullshit and was just either laughed, rolled her eyes, or was just like, whatever. And, uh yeah, few few people on Earth can actually do that. I'm quite sure in her, mo- in her private times, she would just be like, man, so, Lord, let me ask you a question. Exactly... How many people in my previous life did I murder and how much pain and torture did I put them through before I murdered them for me to be reincarnated and be put in this position I'm in right now, listening to this stupid motherfucker ramble on and on and on. Is this my punishment for doing that? All right. Okay. That's the way it is. Wendell's World of Sports. Love you, Shonisa. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right. NFL news, getting back to what's happening in the NFL. Hey, let me ask you a question, man. When did the elite NFL quarterbacks start acting like NBA superstars? I mean, what? how much of Anthony Davis, James Harden, and all these other guys who are talking about, get me out of here, get me out of here. I want to go to this team. I'm not coming back. I'm going to hold this team hostage. When did this start to permeate into the NFL with these quarterbacks? Deshaun Watson and Carson Wentz, who was at one time, considered elite. They're demanding to be traded. Aaron Rodgers making interesting comments near the end of the season about, well, you know, if I'm back, never know. This that, this that and the other. So you have all these um, quarterbacks now with with some type of stroke, with some type of impact on the organization, all of a sudden now going NBA and starting to demand trades. And I want to go here and I want to do this and I want to do that and, Russell Wilson in Seattle, he's the latest. He's the latest quarterback who is like, man, if there's anybody as far as that uh, relationship is concerned between himself and Pete Carroll, we thought that those guys with the positivity and all that kind of stuff, like those were two joined at the hip. But it's like in this scenario, is Russell Wilson going to pull a Kawhi Leonard on Greg Popovich and like, yeah, get me out of here. <laughs> I'm going to L.A. See you later. Is he going to do a Paul George? Yeah, Indiana, I'm going to let you know right now, not coming back, so um, if I were you, you know, one of those type of deals? Man, yeah, Carmelo Anthony, uh, going to New York there, uh, Denver, what are we going to do about it, because I'm not uh, coming back here, so trade me, trade me, trade me. So, what's going on with Russell Wilson going NBA diva on us? There's some... Trust issues in the relationship between Wilson and the Seattle Seahawks organization. Wilson was speaking to reporters this past Tuesday. This is how it all started. He went on the Dan Patrick show and said some stuff. Then he was speaking to reporters this past Tuesday via Zoom. in what was supposed to be, uh, he was supposed to be talking about winning the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award you know, doing work for the community and how much I care about the kids and how much I care about humanity and I want to do this and I want to do that and all this type of stuff. But Wilson was like, nah, we're going to go in a different direction. We're not going to be talking that nonsense. So he came out and wasn't forced, wasn't coerced. He just came out and said, quote, the reality is that I think it's frustrating being there and watching the game and sitting there. This is when he was talking about watching the uh, Super Bowl Uh, Between Kansas City and Tampa. He was in Sierra. We're sitting next to uh, the commissioner in the suite watching the Super Bowl. So he said, the reality is that I think it's frustrating being there and watching the game and sitting there. Part of it, like any player, you never want to get hit. That's the reality of playing this position. Ask any quarterback who wants to play this game. At the same time, it's part of the job. He continued by saying, I've definitely been hit. I've been sacked almost 400 times over his career, over my career. We've got to get better. I've got to find ways to get better too. Just continue to find and try and find that. As we continue to go along and go along the process, I think about my career and what I want to be able to do. It always starts up front, offensively and defensively. It always does. I'm grateful for the time I've been able to put in every day to the process. What's up with that, man? <laughs> what's what's going on with that? Again, what Wilson... This message that Wilson was sending, this was intentional. This was calculated. This was planned. This was, say, very Aaron Rogeresque in terms of it. No, this wasn't like the emotion getting over him or this wasn't a reporter tricking him to go down this road. No, this was something where... Yeah, I'm going to get my message sent, and I'm going to send it not by, you know, having a private conversation with the management of the Seahawks. I'm going to do this in the public. I'm going to air our dirty laundry in the public. And he's right. Wilson being hit during the 2020 season, look, he was sacked 47 times, lost 301 yards because of it. Only two quarterbacks in the NFL suffered more sacks than Wilson last year. So I I, I get the point. I understand the point, but the Seahawks organization is like you, you're gonna have to. You, you couldn't come to us first and discuss this. You had to go on public. You had to go on multiple platforms and go ahead and air your grievances. That's very on unru- un- Russell Wilson ish. Former wide receiver, NFL wide receiver Brandon Marshall, who played with Seattle and Wilson in 2018, he went on the uh, Nick Wright show. First things first on FS1. And he was talking about, you know, Wilson is looking to find a classy way to force the Seahawks to trade him. Listen to uh the uh listen to what Marshall had to say about the Seattle Wilson relationship.
0: Russell Wilson is beyond frustrated. I think Russell Wilson uh is trying to figure out how to move on in a classy way. That's what I truly believe. Like Russ is a wow. guy that's not concerned about like How you think about me and what do you think about me? He's really concerned about what type of legacy do I leave behind? He's trying to leave the legacy that he did things the right way so other guys can follow that same blueprint. So I think he struggles with how to move on in a classy way, in a way where people can look at him and say, you know what? He still did it the right way because that's important for us. Here's the problem. The problem and everybody's talking about it uh uh, you got jason Lockham forward talking about oh uh they 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 need to protect him well they drafted one guy one offensive lineman since they had russell wilson they're always trying to figure out who who's the steal out there in free agency or who's the guy that you know should have a bounce back year and they never really go out there and and solidify that offensive line now a lot of people are like well russell wilson you're holding on to the ball a little long well pete carroll the, the offense that you put in place is we're going to run on first, we're going to run on second, and if it's third and manageable, we're probably going to work, run on third down, and then we're going to take shots. I was there. We had no quick game. There wasn't a, an established game outside of Doug Baldwin, and then you had uh, Tyler Lockett where it was like you had an option route. You either break in or you break out. That was it. So, Russell Wilson, if the deep ball's not there, of course he's going to hold on to the ball definitely when you have that type of offensive line in front of you. So, that is the problem. That That's one of the problems. The other problem, as we know, is like, are we going to let Russ cook? Russ is the guy, Nick, as you know. Oh, he's going to scramble around. He's going to make plays happen. By the end of the day, you need to decide if you believe in Russ to drop back and throw it 30, 40 times. And I don't think they believe in Russ. Well, actually, I know they don't believe in Russ because I was there. Every day before practice, I would sit there with the the quarterbacks with Coach Shoddy and Russell Wilson, and we would talk shop, and we will also do quarterback drills. I would actually be in the quarterback drills. Like, Dropping back, three-step drop, five-step drop, seven-step drop. So I heard a lot of stuff. Well, this week Pete wants us to run a little bit more. Oh, well, what about this? Can't we get into this a little sooner? Or what about our no-huddle offense? Like, no, this is what Pete wants. So there's a huge philosophical difference there in Seattle. So interesting, don't you think?
3: You said, I don't think they believe in Russ. Well, actually, I know they don't believe in Russ because I was there. Every day before practice, I would sit there with the quarterbacks, with Coach Charlie Russell Wilson, and we would talk shop. There's a huge philosophical difference there in Seattle. I don't know, man. Jeez. First of all, it's football. So unlike basketball, it's a lot harder for someone to be traded in football than it is in basketball. And I'm, I'm thinking with Russell Wilson, I mean, yeah, I've been saying it for years. Nobody has more responsibility for the success of their offense and their team more than Russell Wilson. I think, again, the only other person is Patrick Mahomes and Kyler Murray in terms of the pressure and the responsibility. Russell Wilson is right up there at the top. And nobody has done more with less around them. Than Russell Wilson. Now, maybe you can argue Matthew Stafford probably has less around him, but Matthew Stafford hasn't had the success that Russell Wilson has had. Russell has never had a number one wide receiver. He hasn't had a reliable running back since Marshawn Lynch. He's never had a dependable offensive line. His offensive line has been terrible for years. So I, you know, he hasn't had that tight end uh, that he can rely on. So yeah, I, I can understand possibly the the frustration that Russell Wilson might feel, especially when, you know, the first couple of games, you know, the first, what, five, six, seven games of this season? How many times did I uh, go on this podcast, or how many times did I re- record a podcast speaking about the NFL the week before is talking about, man, Russell Wilson, MVP, Russell Wilson, MVP, Russell Wilson, MVP, talking about his stats, talking about his touchdowns, talking about his yardage, talking about the responsibility, him and DK Metcalf, you know, just... Just doing work and doing all these types of things. And it's like the minute Wilson had a couple of bad games. He had a bad game in Buffalo. And then I think he had a bad game against the Rams. It was like, oh, that's enough. That's enough. Slow down. Let's go back to uh, the Pete Carroll type of offense, which is mainly conservative. So I can understand You know, Russell Wilson being upset and frustrated. In a couple of those games, Russell Wilson didn't play well. But if I'm Russell Wilson, I'm thinking to myself, okay, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. There were times down the stretch, especially the defense started picking us up. It was like the first seven games of the season it was all offense the defense was beyond atrocious then we almost kind of flipped the script not saying that the offense was atrocious but the offense became inconsistent and ineffective for periods of times and it was the defense that then took over but with Wilson I'm like okay I get that but damn why is it that all of a sudden I have a bad game or two or something like that and you want to uh You want to you know slow me down or you know kind of take me off of the hydro for a little bit there, but if you take a look at all the other great quarterbacks in the league, they don't do that to Aaron Rodgers. They don't do that to Patrick Mahomes. They don't do that to Deshaun Watson. They don't do that to Ben Roethlisberger. They don't do that to any other great quarterbacks. The franchises and the coach and everything they have faith. They have trust in those guys. That despite having a bad game or such that they're going to rebound and they're going to do better. They don't all of a sudden take the keys away from them and instead of having them drive the Ferrari, they have them drive the Dodge Caravan. So why do I get the same? Why am I getting that treatment when I should be getting the same treatment as the other elite quarterbacks in the game? Because guess what? I am an elite quarterback. So I can understand where Wilson is coming from on that. He wants to be able to play this type of game and he wants to do that by, look, I should have a say in personal manner um, uh uh, decisions. I should be able to say, hey, you know what? Give me this guy. Give me that guy. You need to go ahead and draft this person. You need to go ahead and focus on the draft on these positions, offensive line, tight end, something. Give me something. When you guys are going to be talking about a change in offensive philosophy and where we're going and who's going to be the new offensive coordinator, I should have a role in that. And now you see that these guys are starting to get offended. Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson. They're starting to get a little offended by, you know, wanting to have a say in the matter to improve the team, improve the offense, and the ownership's like, nah, we're good. We're good. So either we're going to ignore you or we're going to lie to you by going, yeah, we're going to, you know, we're going to come to you. Uh, don't worry about that. We're going to come to you and we're going to ask your suggestions and opinions. And we're not going to make any moves until, you know, we kind of get your thoughts and feelings about this. Then they go ahead and, and flip the script and do the, uh, do a 180. I can see where Russell Wilson, who's supposed to be the face of the franchise, who, by the way, is going to get the majority of the blame if things don't go well. I can see where he's kind of like, man, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I mean, you know, fuck you guys. It's starting to get a little bit ridiculous. And, again, are the Seahawks going to be comfortable and trustworthy enough to give him that type of power? Do they really feel, in my estimation, what the Dallas Cowboys, how the Dallas Cowboys feel about Dak Prescott? Do the Seattle Seahawks feel the same way about Russell Wilson? And if they do, guess what, Russ? They ain't going to be coming to you as far as personnel decisions. They're not going to be asking for your opinion about who do you want as a wide receiver or what do we need to concentrate on or what do we need to improve. That ain't going to be happening if they have the same type of feelings about you as their quarterback as, say, the Dallas Cowboys do with Dak Prescott. And it gets to the point where it's like, you know what? If you're Russell Wilson, you know what? Screw this. Time for me to go somewhere else then. If I'm not going to be treated, I'm 32 years old, I've won a Super Bowl, I'm durable, I've proven to be a good guy, I'm not a rebel rouser, and I'm a, a pretty good leader, if you guys aren't going to respect me like that, then maybe it's time for me to go somewhere else. And again, the management, franchise management, they're not happy that Wilson is voicing these displeasures in public. You got to be for anything, come to us. You got some questions or you got some things that you want to discuss, you come to us. You don't go to Dan Patrick. You know, you don't do that while you're accepting the NFL Man of the Year Award. And Russell Wilson's like, I have done that. And you guys haven't been listening to me. I've been doing that for the last couple of years, so you haven't been listening to me. So, um, to get my point across, maybe I need to do something else like go public with these things. Who knows? Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us on this valentine's edition so what is next for this whole deal what's the next chapter in this drama at the seahawks turn as the seahawks don't let russ cook what's, what's happening he's entering a third year of a five-year contract pays him an average of 35 million per year it includes a 32 million dollar cap number in 2021 and the no trade clause so if Seattle is looking to trade this guy moving from him, it would have to uh, first get Wilson's approval. So at least he has that, you know, for the destination that he wants to go. This was an interesting thing. Mark Florio was, Mike Florio was talking about this. He said, pay attention to around June 2nd, because if they trade w- Wilson before June 2nd, it would be a $39 million cap charge for Seattle. If they trade Wilson after June 2nd, the cap hit would be 13 million this season, and if they trade him next season, it would only be a 26 million dollar cap hit. So, we're taking a look at around after June 2nd if if Wilson decides that look, you know what? Screw being a classy way to get out. I'm pissed. I'm angry. Um, I want out of here. I'm done you know, what are we going to do? And if the Seattle organization is like, you know what, if you're going to be like this, everything that we've done for you, everything that we've uh, built around you, if you're going to act like this, then you know what, maybe it's time for us to uh, part ways. So if that's going to come to the conclusion, if the differences are going to be too irreconcilable, then um, who are going to be the teams that are going to be available? Washington has already been sniffing around, but Reading the SI report, they're like, look, we're not going to, um, you know, mortgage our future for Russell Wilson. We're not going to, we're not in the mood for a quote unquote big deal. Maybe Snyder, after going after so many big time players through free agency and such, maybe he's a little bit stake bitten. Maybe he's a little bit gun shy. But they're the Washington organization. They claim in this report in Sports Illustrated that, look, we're not going to, uh, you know, give you multiple first and. Chase Young and all this kind of nonsense. We, we ain't doing that type of stuff. We'll see. I mean, Chase Young for Russell Wilson and picks should be off the table. I'm not. So I'm, I'm not trading. If I'm trading Chase Young, if I have to include Chase Young in any deal, it better be for Deshaun Watson and only for Deshaun Watson. Unless for some stupid reason the uh, Kansas City football team wants to trade Patrick Mahomes, which they don't. But I'm saying with a player like Chase Young, if there's any quarterback out there that's looking to uh, be traded and they want Chase Young. The only quarterback that would be even, okay, let's go ahead and start, would be um, Deshaun Watson. Everybody else, no way, Jose. So you've got Washington who should make a play or might be making a play or is intrigued about making a play for Wilson. Chicago, New England, New Orleans. There was, uh, I read somewhere that maybe Philadelphia. Could we see a Carson Wentz for Russell Wilson and ancillary picks and everything thrown around that? The two main stars, the two main feature players being traded for each other would be Seattle trading Russell Wilson to Philadelphia for Carson Wentz. Interesting. Las Vegas, there were some talks that maybe, you know, the Raiders might be open open to hear what you've got. They're not completely sold on Derek Carr. Does Vegas go after uh, Russell Wilson? John Elway's always looking for a quarterback. Does he also uh, do that also? Um, didn't mention Indianapolis. I think Indianapolis. I don't know. I don't have any sources. I don't have any ear to the ground, what the streets are saying, not, uh, knowledge. But wouldn't you think that Frank Reich... Carson Wentz, that relationship, that that's going to be the main destination point, that if you're looking for a quarterback and you're in Indianapolis, that that would be the route. Maybe they do go after Russell Wilson. I don't know. I mean, we're speaking about a guy, as I mentioned before, Russell, uh, who's 32 years old. He said he wants to play football until he's 45, and he spends a boatload of money to uh, keep himself in tip-top shape. Uh, you know, he's doing the whole deal, the hyperbolic chamber and um, you know, he said that the only two days I take off for training is Christmas and I think he said Christmas and Thanksgiving or something like that. But out of 365 days, he's training 363 days a year. He's got the nutritionist and he's got the masseuse and he's got all of the high tech stuff to, uh, keep his, uh, body as fresh as could be because he says, again, he wants to play till he's 45. How realistic is that? I don't know. But again, this guy hasn't missed any games. He, he's a pretty smart quarterback, so he doesn't take any ridiculous chances. He knows when to slide. He knows when to get out of bounds. He knows when to to uh, avoid hits uh, when possible. So if he's not going to play till he's 45, what are we talking about here? Maybe 32, maybe six, eight, nine good years, really good to good years left in Russell Wilson. So... Again, if you're Chicago, if you're New Orleans, if you're Philadelphia, if you're Denver, if you're Indianapolis, if you're maybe Atlanta, what do you do? What do you do? It'll, it'll be interesting. Wendell's World and Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The Valentine's edition of the podcast. I want to ask you again. Pay attention. When did NFL players... Especially the quarterbacks, quarterbacks of distinction, of consequence, of impact. When did they start acting like this? What is all this about? Again, I, hmm, I think if you want to blame somebody, if you want to see the genesis of these quarterbacks, all of a sudden now getting a little chesty with the ownership and saying, "Hey, you know what? Either you know include me in what's going on and this, that, and the other, or else get me the hell out of here." I think that all started with Tampa Bay and Tom Brady. I really do. Or at least amped it up. I'm quite sure that with Rodgers, with Russell Wilson, he mentioned it before in the Zoom call. I mean, he's up there watching Brady win another Super Bowl. And they're also seeing Brady making that move from New England to Tampa, winning the Super Bowl the first time out. And, most importantly, going to a franchise that said, you know what? Screw the future. Screw the future. We're winning now. We're going to do everything that we can to put you in the best position to win now. That was a lot different because Brady's 43 years old. Now, Aaron Rodgers is 37, 38, somewhere around there. Russell Wilson is 32. So, I mean, it might be a little bit different because is going to be around for the next six, seven, eight years. I mean, we just can't just mortgage our future for one or two years and then in four or five years be bottom-of-the-barrel Drex. With Brady, Brady realistically has, what, two, three, after this season, two more years left? Possibly? Maybe? So for Tampa, it's easy to say, look, in two to three years when Brady finally gets out of here, we're going to have to just build the thing back up anyway. So really, who cares? Why are we... Why are we being um, conservative now when we have this guy who can help us win a championship now? So, man, let's just do everything we can. And Brady, excuse me, and Rodgers, and Watson, and Wentz, and Wilson, they saw the moves and the future sacrifices the organization made to give Brady the best chance to win now. They went in and they got Leonard Fournette. They went in and uh, got Gronkowski. They went in and got Antonio Brown. Remember? Remember when it first came up? Antonio Brown, could he be reunited with uh, Tom Brady and Bruce Arians? It was like, nah, sorry. Been there, done that. I had him in Pittsburgh. Not really interested. No thanks. I'll pass. Right? Brady was like, yeah, but I want him. Guess who was on the table? of Bay Buccaneers team. Thank you. You don't think Aaron Rodgers says that and, and it's like, damn, man, you know. <laughs> you don't think Russell Wilson, who's been begging the Seahawks organization and coaching staff to let him cook, you don't think Wilson sees that and it's like, damn, man, really? I mean, you know, I was trying to get Antonio Brown. The, the um Seahawks were one of the few teams that were going after Antonio Brown. And before that, they were going after uh, uh Josh. Oh, my goodness gracious, from Cleveland. <sighs> Why do I got Josh Richardson in my head? I don't know, but um, Josh Gordon came to me. Yeah, so Seattle was one of the teams that was going after Josh Gordon and Antonio Brown. And Wilson was lobbying for both those guys. And both times, it didn't happen. So who's holding up the Super Bowl trophy in front of uh, Ciara and Russell Wilson's face? Antonio Brown with Tom Brady, who was like, yeah, I'm sorry, Bruce. Yeah, I know you might've worked with him before. And you might not have liked the experience, but, um, I like him. I want him. Go get him. And the ownership was like, okay, that's the type of shit that you see these other quarterbacks, the elite quarterbacks are looking at and it's like, I want that type of power too. I want this. Yeah. I might not have won seven, six championships like Tom Brady, but as of right now, I'm just as good. Fuck that. I'm better than him. So why am I not getting the same treatment? So. With Deshaun Watson, again, he's like, damn, man, really? I'm, I'm stuck here in Houston with a batshit organization that's going nowhere. I'm playing my ass off. I had one of the best seasons a quarterback can have in decades in the NFL. And the only thing people are talking about is Patrick Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Josh Allen. Oh yeah, Deshaun Watson, he's good too. I don't, I want to be there. I see Baker Mayfield make the playoffs. I see Josh Allen getting MVP votes. I see Patrick Mahomes being called the greatest quarterback who's ever lived. I see all this shit. I see all these other young quarterbacks getting all this stuff. Meanwhile, I'm stuck down in Houston. They traded away my best receiver. I have no offensive line. My defense stinks out loud. I have a team chaplain with no experience in the NFL being the vice president of football operations. I have a joke as a coach who's not even really a coach. He's just a... um he's just a placeholder for some coach who has no experience, Josh McCown, this backup quarterback, how in the fuck is he going to help me? Who's the best backup quarterback, third-string quarterback, who's ever been a coach in the NFL worth a damn? What, we're going to have to go down to Jason Garrett of the Cowboys? How did that work out? How many championships did he win? How many Super Bowls did he go to? How many Pro Bowlers did he uh to- have tutelage to-, to on his quarterback roster? Get me the fuck out of here. So all of that's swirling around. And for the, I mentioned before, for the older cats, they see what Tom Brady did, what Tom Brady got, the power that Tom Brady has, and they're like, man, fuck that, I want that same shit. If I can't get it here, I'll go somewhere else and get it. And I guess for some of those guys, it's almost like, even if I have to take a step back, and I'm thinking that with Russell Wilson, Seattle's pretty good. So is Russell willing to take a step back to get the power that he needs To rebuild a team in his image? It'll be interesting. One thing I do know is that, you know, whatever's gotten into you guys in terms of, you know, flexing your muscles, flexing your power. In the NFL, all I'm asking you guys to do is to keep it up. Don't stop. Don't stop believing. Hold on to the power. Okay, sorry, but um, sorry, Steve Perry. But uh, yeah, man, go ahead and keep using it. You know, let these let these owners know. Fuck that shit, man. You know, because more than any sport, I think. Oh, shit, I'm not. I know, no, no, I'm not gonna use. I'm not gonna use. I'm not gonna use slave plantation. That's fucking ignorant, slave master. I'm not using that stupid shit. That is. Offensive, ridiculous, idiotic. So I'm not going to say that. Let's just say, as far as owner-employee, boss-employee, check-writer, check-receiver is concerned in professional sports, no one has more power more than the NFL owner over his players. In the NBA, the players run the league because of the fact that you have a guy like LeBron or you have a, a superstar that could change the fortune of your franchise overnight. And these owners know it. So they are a little bit more, uh, they they will acquiesce and kowtow to the player a lot more. Baseball, same thing. Hockey, who cares? But for football, because you have so many players and such, the owners have a little bit more sway. Plus um, Plus the players don't have guaranteed contracts in the NFL for the most part, except for their signing bonus. So the owners have a little bit more power. So it's like, hey, you know what? You have three years on your contract. Fuck you. Get under the center. Snap the ball. Hand the ball off. Throw, whatever. Just get the fuck out of my face in my office. It's starting to change a little bit in the NFL. Now these quarterbacks are starting to say, no, 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 no. Fuck you. Because if you tell me to fuck myself and I walk out of this office, guess what? You'll never see me put on pads for your team again. If you think I'm bullshitting, try me. We'll see what happens. It'll be a good uh, experiment here between the Texans and Deshaun Watson. But these guys are starting to flex their power. These guys are starting to flex their muscle. And I love it, man. Continue, guys. Continue to to take control of your career. And most importantly, screw the fans. Screw everybody else. You do what's best for you. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Speaking about what's going down in the world of sports, you know, this is, as I'm recording this Valentine's Day podcast, Wendell's World of Sports, the Valentine's Day edition of what's happening in the world of sports. You know, I've always thought that this song by the late, great Jim Croce, kind of symbolic of a, a lot of times that... You were in a situation where you were in a relationship or you were digging somebody, you were liking somebody, you were feeling somebody, and you wanted to let them know how you felt. And you're not a poet, you're not a songwriter. You know, sometimes the words don't flow from your head, from the brain, to the mouth, to the lips, to the tongue, out to the existence, to where she can hear the harmonious sounds of how much you feel and how much you love for her. So sometimes you might go up to a beautiful young lady and you might say I, 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 I just um, I, your, your, uh, your groove I, I, you might sound like that sometimes you just want to tell her how much you love her tell her how much you feel for her. Tell her how much she means to you. And you want to do that in a song cause every time the time was right the words just came out wrong so I'll have to say I love you in a song. Yeah, I know it's kind of late. I hope I didn't wake you. But there's something that I just gotta say. I know you'll... I know it doesn't sound like Jim Croce. Man, work with me. Every time I try to tell you, the words just came out wrong. So I'll have to say I love you in a song. Do that. Do that right now. Do that right now. Spur in the moment. Be spontaneous. Come on, man. She'll love that women love that. Spontaneity. Go ahead and do that. Just call her up. Text her. Zoom call her. Do something. Google meet her. Something. Yeah, I know it's kind of late. I hope I didn't wake you. But there's something that I just got to say. I know you'll understand. Every time I tried to tell you, the words just came out wrong. So I'll have to say I love you in a song. I did that once when I was like, I don't know how old I was. I was in middle school, I remember. I think with Joy Postel's sister, I, I liked. So my stupid ass got on the phone, called her. Answering machine, and I left out like every time I tried to tell you, the word just came out wrong. So I have to say I love you in a song. Um, a little did I know, of course, but I was just too stupid to realize that. Oh yeah, I forget. I'm calling her house. She's in middle school, so obviously it's not her house. It's her mom's house. So if her mom picks up the phone and she hears my dumbass every time I try to tell you, the word just came out wrong. Like, uh, Joy, Uh, this jackass is calling again, talking some. Bullshit about every time I try to tell you, the words came out wrong. So not to say I love you in a song. Yes, yes, my history of being has been littered with stupendently stupid decisions, and that was one of them. Of course, you never responded either. <laughs> Another one that didn't work, chick. <laughs> Felicia, every time I try to tell you, the word just came out wrong. So I'll have to say I love you. Hello? 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 Well, damn, bitch, you want to hang up before I say I love you in a song. Jeez. One of those worlds of sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right. NFL news. I got to get to this one. <laughs> Jacksonville Jaguar fans. Yeesh. How are you feeling today? Huh? How are things going on in your world? Uh, Urban Meyer. Showing us he's either tone deaf, extremely arrogant, privileged, out of touch, willfully ignorant in this area, maybe all of the above, what percentage, I don't know, but with one of his recent hires to the staff of the Jacksonville Jaguars, yikes, he hired Chris Doyle as director of sports performance for the team, less than 48 hours after he uh, hired him, uh, Chris Doyle submitted his resignation. This is what uh, Urban Meyer announced per Mark Long of the Associated Press and a statement from Meyer via Long. He said that Chris Doyle came to us this evening to submit his res- resignation and we have accepted. Chris did not want to be a distraction to what we are building in Jacksonville. We are responsible for all aspects of our program and in retrospect should have gotten greater consideration of to how his appointment may have affected all involved. We wish him the best as he moves forward in his career. That motherfucker shouldn't have a career. Um well his resume at Iowa as the sports at the director of sports performance, it's uh let me move up my chair here, excuse me. Yeah, his performance uh his uh, resume at the sports uh at the director of sports performance is pretty good. Served as head coach and conditioning coach for the University of Iowa from nineteen ninety nine to 2019, 20 years, participated in 16 bowl games, saw 55 Iowa players selected in the NFL draft from 2005 to 2019. Pretty impressive, not bad. Hmm, can see where based on those qualifications, he could get a look-see, he could get a possibility, maybe even get a higher. Oh, but then again, you dig a little deeper, also included in his background, accusations of him making racist remarks and belittling and bullying players at the team's director of sports performance. Some of the issues raised by the numerous former Iowa players who spoke out on social media was that Doyle, um, black and white players were held to a different agenda, uh, different standards and agendas. Black players were mistreated. Doyle and other assistants made racist remarks and black players felt they had to conform to specific ways of dress and behavior. Their complaint sparked the university to hire Kansas City law a Kansas City law firm to conduct an, an external investigation into the football program. So after Doyle was accused of racially of a racial bias by multiple black players, he got a 1.1 million dollar separation package and only took eight months to find a new job with Jacksonville before less than 36 hours later he resigned or Urban Meyer came to him and said, you're fired or something happened. So when it comes to uh, Chris Doyle, the issues weren't strictly related to race during his time with Iowa. He was a, uh, he's a very, uh, he has a multitude of ignorances that he has to deal with. A very uh, former Iowa offensive lineman, Jack uh Kagenberger. He said last June on Twitter that he retired from football in January of 2019 after he became despondent because of what he described as bullying related to a learning disability. Doyle was among the coaches who he named who harassed him. <laughs> Jesus. During the tenure at Iowa, he also his workouts also put 13 Iowa players in the hospital. What are you fucking... Doing Urban Meyer. And when all of this shit finally came to light, when the darkness became the light, instead of being fired, Doyle got an award and became college football's highest paid strength coach. Not the racist and everything, but the fact that he was putting people in the hospital. I mean, right there, wasn't that sort of kind of a, I mean, Kurt Forense, wasn't that sort of a, hmm. What the hell's going on here? Now, what Doyle said in the statement posted on Twitter the day after he would let go by Iowa, of course he did the old, at no time have I ever crossed the line of unethical behavior or bias based based upon race. I do not make racist comments and I don't tolerate people who do. Yeah, sure. So, look, I don't know the man, I wasn't there, but I'm going to take the word of multiple Iowa players instead of one guy. So that's going to be my take. I wasn't there. I didn't hear him. I don't know Chris Doyle. Never met Chris Doyle. Have no idea until this story came up who Chris Doyle was, what he looked like or anything. All right. So that's take that for what it's worth. But in deciding my thoughts and feelings about Chris Doyle concerning this matter and this issue, I'm going to rely and have more faith in what the multitude of players for Iowa said about this man. If it was just one player, disgruntled, whatever, maybe, you know, I need a little bit more information, need a little bit more facts, this, that, and the other. When you have a multitude of players coming out and say that, then, like I said, in terms of the variety of his ignorance, when not only is there racism involved, but there's also evidence of him bullying players, and then you um, mix that all in with 13 players because of his workout having to go to the hospital, Yeah, 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 yeah. Never met the man, but I can kind of make my conclusions. Just like I never met Hitler, but you know what? I can make my conclusions that that guy was a walking evil scumbag. Not comparing Chris Doyle to Hitler, what I'm saying is that you don't have to know somebody to be confident in forming your opinion about him, good or bad. So, what Meyer said about the decision to hire Doyle on Friday, he was still up there defending him. He said, I vet everyone on our staff, and like I said, the relationship goes back close to 20 years and a lot of hard questions asked, a lot of vetting involved with all of our staff. We did a very good job vetting that one. Now, I will say this, because, look, the Fritz Pollard Alliance came out and said, this is bullshit, this is nonsense, they they didn't use the word bullshit, but basically they were saying, you know, this is ridiculous, and the fact that you said that, you know, the relationship goes back close to 20 years. Uh, that had a lot to do with the uh, with Doyle being hired, and that's the good old boys network. Well, that is true. That is true. That is true. That is true. But I will say it also: it works both ways because black folks do the same thing. Black folks hire who they know and who they trust and who they feel comfortable with and who they have a relationship with. And the longer the relationship, relationship, the stronger the relationship. So, the good old boys network is just not based solely on white folks hiring white folks only. It also goes to uh, black folks hiring black folks. But, you know, in a lot of instances, unfortunately, you have white folks in the power to make hires much more than black folks. So when something like this happens, it gets magnitude. It gets a lot more attention. And that's defending Urban Meyer um, hiring this guy. If he knew him for 20 years, then he should have known that this shit was uh, for real. And because of that, despite his friendship, relationship, acquaintance, whatever you want to call it, that should have been a disqualifier for him to uh, hire him. So the fact that he knew him for 20 years should have made the question of whether he should have hired him or not even more uh, easy to make, which would have been no. So again, it goes back to hubris, arrogance, ignorance. I don't know, maybe the location, I mean... Jacksonville, Florida, we're talking about here. The farther north you move up Florida, the deeper south you get. So we're speaking about Jacksonville, Florida here, who is not the most progressive city in the world. I'm going to guess. I'm going to go out on a limb. So, you know, the fact that, hey, Doyle, racist things, you know, the folks in Jacksonville, mainly the white folks, the majority of them probably wouldn't give a shit. Or the ones that do give a shit, are like, hey, you know what? As long as he makes his win and he doesn't call anybody a nigger, we're fine. So there you go. So maybe he thought all of those things going in could have been just glossed over. Like no one was gonna be like, huh, Chris Doyle, huh? Interesting. Hmm." So as I mentioned before, Meyer was talking about, I vet everyone on our staff. And like I said, the relationship goes back close to 20 years. And a lot of hard questions asked, a lot of vetting involved with all our staff. We did a very good job vetting that one. I met with our staff and I'm going to be very transparent with all the players like I am with everything. I'll listen closely and learn. And also there's going to have to be some trust in their head coach, what we're going to give them the very best and time will tell the allegations that took place allegations. The allegations that took place I will say to the players, I vetted him, I know the person for close to 20 years, and I can assure them that there will be nothing of any sort in the Jaguar facility. Well, okay, number one, maybe you can say that, and maybe Doyle is smart enough to know that, yeah, I'm going to be in the pros now, and I'm going to be dealing with men, and I'm not going to be dealing with kids, and if I try that bullshit with men, I will get my jaw broke. I will get, uh, you know, verbally smacked back down. So that bullshit, that nonsense, you know, I can do that with kids. A bully knows his boundaries. A bully isn't going to bully somebody who can defend himself. A bully is not going to bully somebody who can retaliate. A bully is not going to bully somebody who can do something about the person bullying him. The bully is going to pick on someone who's weaker. That's a bully. So Chris Doyle knows 51-year-old man, 52 old? however, however old that man is, that man knows that he can't go up to grown men and treat him like he did a 17, 18-year-old red shirt freshman or a third string walk-on uh, freshman. He knows he can't get away with that shit. Urban Meyer knew he couldn't get away with that shit. So there was a situation, maybe he was like, look, you know, you're in the pros, you're gonna be dealing with men. You know that the shit that you got away with, you know, the verbiage that you use, you know, some of the remarks that you made ain't going to fly with these grown men, right? Right. Thank you. Okay. I mean, you've made it to a level to where I think you're intelligent, smart enough, have enough common sense to know that. Yeah. The way I talk to kids is not the way I'm going to be talking to men. So maybe that was the situation where he says, I trust them and he can be assured that something like this won't happen in the Jaguar facility. Yeah, because if it did, Chris Doyle would be physically in trouble with some of these guys. Meyer also said that the franchise owner, Sad Khan, and general manager, Trent Dahlke, signed off on the decision. So, you know, I'm not going to be the only one thrown under the bus here. I'm going to throw those two under and hope they get rubber. So, Meyer said that he vetted them. Let me ask a Coach something. And I'm too bad some of the media didn't ask this question. Well... Coach, you said that you vetted him and you did your due diligence. Did you talk to Chris Maven? Chris Maven is a player on the team that was one of the players that accused Doyle of racism. Did you talk to him? If you did talk to him, how much did it play in terms of you deciding whether you should have hired him or not? Any decision? Anything like that? (laughs) Not really, you don't see any conflict of interest there or any conflict there? Interesting? Bewildering? I think another problem that Meyer has, and I'm dating this here on one World of Sports Podcast, the Valentine's Day edition, is that Meyer has, you know, making his decision to hire Doyle. When we do this all the time. men, men. Women, women, straight, straight, gay, gay, black, black, white, white, Republican, Republican. I mean, we, we do this. Asking people, and I'll just bring it here to Meyer when we're speaking about, you know, whether the accusations of him being a racist and a bully would have made any type of play. Like, when you're, when if Meyer was asking something, I wonder if Meyer asked Charlie Strong about, you know, how would you feel working with someone like this? Charlie Strong, former coach of Texas, was the defensive coordinator for Meyer when he was um, at uh, Florida before he took the job at Louisville and developed Teddy Bridgewater, which got him the job at uh, Texas, in which he got fired after three years, and then he went to uh, South Florida, I think it was, and he was uh, working with Nick Saban being one of his assistants, um, got a job as the inside linebackers coach for Jacksonville. And he's also going to be the associate head coach. He's had a long relationship with Charlie, um, with um, Urban Meyer. And I'm going to uh, assume, and I know what happens when I assume, but I don't care about making an ass out of you or me. I'm going to say it anyway. I'm going to go on the assumption that Charlie Strong has a closer relationship with, with Urban Meyer than Chris Doyle. So I wonder in the vetting and asking, did Urban Meyer come up to uh, Charlie Strong and get his thoughts and opinions? And more importantly, how do you feel about working with someone who has been shown or is being accused of being a racist and a bully? More racist than bully when you're dealing with Charlie Strong. Did Urban Meyer get his thoughts and opinions from uh, Charlie Strong? But again, it's it's a... um. It's a problem where people of their own race are asking other people of their own race about a situation where if you take the Chris Doyle situation with Urban Meyer, I'm wondering how many people of uh, trust did Urban Meyer ask in terms of what do you think about bringing in this guy? Was it even discussed? And if you're speaking to another white guy about it, was it even brought up? Did you even think about the fact that, you know what, you're trying to build this culture, first time in the NFL, great college coach, one of the all-time greats. I'm now going to take this Herculean challenge of going to the NFL. I'm 56 years old. I don't know too much. I haven't been an assistant. I haven't been a player. Never, don't have any experience whatsoever in the NFL, putting the staff together, going over, interviewing, all of these type of things, relationship, Rolodex, whatever, man. When you... We're asking these people about the staff that you're putting together. Did did that ever come to come to fruition in terms of you know this guy's being accused of racism? This guy was being accused of some pretty bad things. You think you think I should add him to my staff? How do you think that'll work with the players? How do you think that'll you know go with the community? I don't know. What what do you think? And who was he asking? Was he asking a coach? Was he asking a former NFL coach, a confidant, somebody, a GM, somebody with some type of NFL ties? He's trying to build a culture within the organization. So if he hires someone who was accused by black football players and making racist remarks and showing racial bias, how much did that conversation go into play when he was talking to other white guys about putting his staff together, which... Person is good. Which coach shouldn't I, uh, interview? Which coach shouldn't I move forward with? And again, was it even brought up? Was he so privileged and so out of touch with the situation that's going on that it wasn't even brought up? Like, yeah, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I heard something about he was accused by some guy or something like that in Iowa. I forgot what it was, but you know, everything will be great because he's unbelievable with what he does and he'll make these players better and once these players these black players who might have some reservations about who he is as a human being once you know he gets them into shape and they start performing well and they start making a lot of money they'll kind of forget about all of the other things and if they meet him they'll find out he's a good guy no big deal and this that the other I, I don't know exactly how that went down or what that was about but it's Here's a lesson for folks in terms of learning and growing. And I'm going to explain this lesson here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with your host, Wendell Wallace. If you want to get the true and correct answer to your problems or, you know, your questions concerning racism, bigotry, discrimination towards immigrants, women, gay, lesbians, you know what you do? You go to the source. So if you want to learn about racism, you know what you need to do? Ask a black or brown person. If you want to find out about discrimination toward gays and lesbians, you you know what you do? Find someone who's gay and lesbian and then ask them some questions. If you want to learn about mistreatment and discrimination toward women, you know what? Go ahead and find yourself a woman and ask her. I mean, within the bevy of people that you might talk about, I'm not just saying you just go only to black folks if you want to find out about discrimination, but something tells me that black people know a little bit more about being discriminated against because of the color of their skin than white people. Now, I know if you listen to certain news channels and you listen to certain radio shows or you read certain newspapers or you're uh, you're following certain people on Facebook or Twitter or other forms of social media that these bigots... These white racist racist nationalists, they might feel that they know more about discrimination towards blacks than actual black people do. Or if you're going to be listening to folks who are living in an environment where there's no black people around or hardly any black people around or they don't associate with any black people. And the only thing that they get in terms of what black folks are all about are from Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and OAN and the Republican party and the fucking asshole that was in the white house before that could maybe skew what the realism is toward black folks and what discrimination is all about. Same thing with gays and lesbians. You might want to say, you know what? This guy was, uh, you know, this guy was accused of uh, being homophobic. Uh, let me ask someone who's homophobic if that's true or not. Doesn't make any sense, does it? Doesn't really make any sense. If I want to find out something about women, why would I go ahead and ask another man? Before or or exclude asking women and just go strictly on men's thoughts and feelings about women. Why, why would I do that? Why would I do that? If I'm putting together a team, I'm putting together folks who need to work together and I'm hiring somebody who's a misogynistic pig, who's been accused of sexual harassment, misogynistic, all this type of things. If I'm going to hire this guy, am I going to mainly talk to men or women? Hmm. I wonder what the answer is going to be. So Urban, just a little, um, just a little heads up. You know, a situation like that, I'm not saying you're a racist. I'm not saying that. Yeah, man. Yeah. I love the fact that he was, do that and the other, because, you know, As we've seen in this country forever, that definitions kind of skew. They're, they're different when it comes to what's racist and what's not racist, what's homophobic and what's not homophobic, what's misogynistic and what is misogynistic. You know, all of those things kind of vary. Like what black folks feel is discrimination most part, is different than what white people feel is discrimination. Now, black folks happen to be right, white folks happen to be wrong, but for the most part, what one person of color thinks is discrimination, racism, oppression, probably a white person feels something a little bit different because the white person has never been discriminated against because of the color of their skin, so that they don't have that experience. They're probably not as uh, immersed informed or as intelligent in terms of what's happening than a black person. Just my thought, just the facts, just something that's kind of common sense. Never been. I've never been discriminated because of my gender. I've never been discriminated against because I'm a woman. Never have. Never, ever have. I've never been discriminated because of that. So if you're going to come to ask me about women being uh, discriminated against, I'm the wrong guy. I might be able to give you my thoughts and opinions, but for the most part, with me being a man, probably not the best guy to ask. There's plenty of women that I know who can fill you in a lot better because, oh, they're women. Being gay, I can't, I can't, I don't know what true discrimination is because of your sexual orientation or because of who you love. I I don't know that experience. I've never been discriminated against because I was gay, because I'm not gay. So I don't know. I, I have no idea. Couldn't couldn't tell you, couldn't ask you, couldn't answer that question. But I do know some gay people who might be able to answer that question for you. They might be a little bit more informed than me because they are gay and they are lesbian. So maybe you might want to ask them before you ask me. Now you might ask me, "Hey, what are your thoughts and feelings about gay and lesbian people?" I'm putting the staff together. I want to hire you, but are you cool with that? In terms of you don't have no issues with that, right? I mean, you're not going to be cool. All right, there we go. Thank you very much. You might have that. You might have that uh, conversation with me, but maybe Urban should have asked a couple of more black people about what do you think about hiring a racist, <laughs> allegedly. Think that's a good idea? You think you might be able to work with him? (laughs) Jeez. Got to remember, though, what the NFL is all about. And again, as I mentioned before, when you're in Jacksonville, Florida, you can maybe get away with it because I'm going to go on on a limb, especially when it comes to the white community in Jacksonville, Florida and the surrounding areas who are Jacksonville Jaguar fans who might live in that vicinity. Something tells me that their definition of racism is a lot different than what black folks definition down there of racism is and it's one to where hey we don't mind having greg doyle on this team even if he was accused of doing those types of things long as he wins as long as he helps us helps us win we can rationalize anything one one thing that we learn here in america over the last four years even though i've known it for 51 is that um you know folks can excuse racism, all different types of ways. They can make excuses for it. They can explain it away. I mean, you can do anything. Unless unless someone is walking down the street with a white hood in a sheet, burning a cross and yelling out, nigger, die, nigger, die, and actually inflicting some violence on a black person and doing it because, and then going ahead and saying, because he's black and white people are more superior than a coon nigger, Other than that, white folks pretty much on the majority can excuse any other type of racism. We've kind of found that out a little bit more crystal clear over the last four years. So we're speaking about Jacksonville, Florida here. The fan base, for the most part, I'm quite sure the overwhelming majority would have no problem with Urban Meyer having Chris Doyle, Greg Doyle, Roger Doyle, whatever that motherfucker's name is, would have no problem with him being on the staff. And the overwhelming uh, white uh, folks in the white community would have no problem. The blacks might have a little bit different uh, take, but the white folks wouldn't have any problem. And who do we cater to in this country, first and foremost? We cater to the white folks. So he could have gotten away with it if he wanted to be steadfast and uh, bullheaded, but... Luckily, Urban Meyer and Doyle kind of came to the understanding that uh, this wouldn't work. So please remember who is and what the NFL is all about, okay? We're talking about old, elder, rich, extremely rich, not just rich, unbelievably rich white men who were financial backers, supporters, friends, whatever you want to say, of a person who served the president of this country in name only, and he served it in a way that was divisive, bigoted corrupt, incompetent, and greed only. And a lot of these extremely rich billionaire uh, owners around the same age group or at least around that same level was willing to say, four more years of this, no problem. I'm rich enough to survive anything. I'm rich enough, old enough, and white enough to survive anything that motherfucker's gonna do for the next four years. So, hey, why do I care? Give me another tax break. So, you know, there we go. So that's, you know, the same league that destroyed the career of Colin Kaepernick. Let's, re- let's remember that also. So um I'm glad to see that Meyer made the decision, whether it was mutual or not. I'm, I'm glad that this was a situation where he can move on. He's going to have some explaining to do. I'm quite sure with some of his players. Um But let's just hope, if you're a Jacksonville Jaguar fan, that this is not the sign of a uh, the sign of something worse. It was really interesting, and I want to play this audio before I move on here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, the Valentine's Day version of Wendell's World of Sports. Interesting audio of what he said in the def- in uh, defending the hire of Doyle. It wasn't so much about, you know, um, this guy was great, this guy was wonderful. It was sort of the verbiage that he used that if I'm a Jacksonville Jaguar fan.
4: Mm.
3: I'm a little bit
5: concerned. This is what he said. Yeah, I've known Chris for uh, close to 20 years. Our relationship goes back to when I was at Utah, and he was the number one strength coach. And really, he he was doing sports performance before sports performance became uh, 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 a high priority in in college sports. And so I've known him. I've studied him. Uh, We've had a relationship. Uh, I vetted him thoroughly along with our general manager and owner, Feel great about the hire, about his expertise at that, uh, at that position. So we vetted them thoroughly, and and uh, sports performance is going to be a high, high priority as it as it really in the last probably I don't know ten years really certainly at Ohio State that became if not the most important. You guys know my relationship with Coach Maradi, at uh, at Ohio State, but uh, this 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 whole from strength training ta- uh, training room. Physical therapy, sports psychology, nutrition—that all fun- falls under the sports performance uh, team umbrella—and I wanted to get the best of the best.
3: All right, I want to ask you this question. I want to ask you: You're a football fan. You might be a Jacksonville Jaguar fan. You're you're following this at the very least. Let me ask you: Isn't that sound bite a little bit concerning? And I'm focusing on the sports performance. As part of it Didn't he sound like a college coach Right there Sports performance is going to be a high high priority At Ohio State Over the last 10 years it became extremely important Strength uh, strength Training room, physical therapy Sports psychology, nutrition All falls under the sports performance And we wanted to get the best of the best Doesn't that shit sound like College at Ohio State over the last 10 years, who gives a damn about Ohio State? Who gives a damn about anything college over the last 10 years? Who cares? Guess what? Dorothy, you ain't in Kansas or in Columbus. This ain't college football. This ain't Ohio State. This ain't the Big Ten. This isn't none of that nonsense. Don't look. You're in the pros now, urban. No more talking about college. You're done with college. Finished. I don't want to hear anything about college. I don't care what you did at Bowling Green or Utah or Florida or Ohio State. I don't care. Doesn't make any difference. As uh, Rex Ryan said on the Mike Greenberg show a little bit uh, a little while ago, you're you're in the men's league now. You're playing with the big boys. Okay, you're playing in the real league, a men's league. Stop with the well, at Ohio State. Don't mean shit. Doesn't mean anything. Sports performance. You you really strength training room physical therapy sports psychology nutrition. You you realize that a lot of those things that you just mentioned, you know, a lot of those guys, it, look, maybe he's speaking about the young cats. Maybe he's speaking about the younger guys who hadn't made their, uh, as Marshawn Lynch would say, hadn't made their chicken yet. Maybe he's speaking about those guys who might not have the financial resources, but the ones who do, they already have all that stuff, man. Urban, they don't need a strength. I mean, a strength coach would be great, But, you know, a lot of these guys, they have their own strength coaches and their own sports psychologists and their own chefs who deal with their nutrition. Now, training room and everything. I understand that. Get that. What I understood. And I know the basic philosophy of that is important. Yeah, I'm I get that. But it just seemed a little bit. It just seemed a little bit college to me. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah, when you're dealing with 18 to 22 year olds who for the first time in their lives might be away from a home who are still learning, who are still growing physically, mentally, who don't have the sophistication, who don't have the experience of dealing with um uh, with with the everyday rigors of high performance athletics. I mean, a lot of these guys if you're speaking about Ohio State and where You were coaching before with the exception of maybe Bowling Green, yes, and maybe Utah. But once you got to Florida, and once you got to Ohio State, you're, you're dealing with guys who probably for the most part really didn't pay too much attention to those things because strength and everything else, they were just so much better than the players that they were playing against in high school. They didn't have to spend a whole lot of time worrying about nutrition and strength training and physical therapy and all those type of things because those guys were eons better than the people that they were playing with so i can understand you know first time you're living in a dorm you supposedly allegedly classes and every and all those type of things again 18 22 years old what 18 and 22 year olds go through yeah i can understand the great importance and the and uh, everything that's put on the importance of training room Physical therapy, sports psychology, nutrition—gotcha, understood, no doubt about it. But man, you're in the NFL now. Now you're dealing with guys who are going to be 28, 30, 32, 33 years old. Guys who've been in the league four, six, eight, ten, sometimes 12, 15 years. For the most part, they—they've got this. For the most part, if they're a productive player and they're a professional and they've been in the league for a while, and they're making good chicken, all of this is sort of taken, all of this is, is, is taken care of. Now, you could have those things. You can want the best of the best, absolutely. But to sit there and talk about, you know, it being a high, high sports performance is going to be a high, high priority. That doesn't need to be a high, high priority or urban. You know what needs to be a high, high priority? Relationship relationship building, which builds trust. You know this. Why am I telling Urban Meyer this? You know this. That should be the number one deal. Do the players in the locker room believe you? Do the players in the locker room trust you? Do the players in the locker room have a relationship with you? Do the players in the locker room believe that you really care about them, not just as commodities to get you paid and to improve your record and do all those type of things, but do they Believe that you care about them as human beings. Now, you showed that at Florida. You showed that at Ohio State. But, again, you're going to be dealing with men. The relationships that you had and that you built in college are going to be different than the ones that you built in the NFL. And why am I saying this? Urban Meyer already knows this. You already know this. That's my point. That's going to be my thing. It just sounded a little too collegey. So my deal would be like, hey, man, just enough with the college You ain't in college no more. You in the NFL. So get it together. Get it together and get through it quickly. Because NFL means not for long if you don't win. And these players don't give a shit about what you did in college. Your record, championships, Heisman Trophy winners. Well, they don't give a fuck. What can you do for me? How can you help me win? That's going to be the deal. He knows this already, Wendell. Will you shut up and please play Sweet Love by Anita Baker? Thank you. Wendell's World and Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us here on this special Valentine's Day edition of Wendell's World of Sports. Yes. Ah, the sweet, beautiful sounds of Anita Baker. Sweet love. And I know that the person that you're with tonight, I know her love is sweet. Sweet as sugar. Sweet as cherry pie. Sweet as chocolate cake. And I know listening to this song, looking into her eyes, her lips close to yours, that you just wanna take a bite of that chocolate cookie that you call your sweetheart, that you call your everything, that you call the love of your life. The one that the Almighty being blessed upon you through the grace of his goodness and his love you two love birds getting together. Ah, yes, sweet love. Hear me calling out my name? I feel no shame. later on tonight, deep, deep in the midnight hour, when you two are holding each other, when you two are embraced in your love, in your passion for each other, I just want to let you know that Georgetown won today. And, woo, boy, am I happy. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, good bounce back. Victory by my Hoyas. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, <coughs> sorry. Oh, Jesus. Um, Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Yeah. Man, Anita Baker. When that Raptor album came out, where were you? That was a moment in time in a lot of folks' life around my generation, around my age group, where... Where were you, what were you doing, and what was the effect the first time you heard Rapture, the album Rapture by Anita Baker, and you heard Sweet Love? Man, I thought I'd die and gone to heaven. I remember that came out, and I remember when I first heard Sweet Love, it was going into, was it going into my junior year? Junior or senior year in high school, I don't remember, man. You're talking about the the late 1980s. What do I know? Um, I don't remember what I did 10 minutes ago, but I remember when that album came out, it was me, my brother Michael Davis, Hayden Witter, Kevin Grace, Scott Sanderson, New York Perkins, um, Steve Smith. All we did in the morning, we go out and we hoop. Summertime, So I think this was going into my junior year because a lot of all those guys were going into their senior year. So, yeah. So what we did was I would go out early in the morning. You know, summertime, we didn't have school. So we would go out, play ball until the humidity and heat got a little bit too hot. Then we would all go to Steve Smith's house and we would play that record, play that record, play that record, play that record, play a couple of uh then what we call rap songs. I think the thing was what people do. For money what people do for money. I think Houdini was still riding high. I didn't like run DMC, but basically we just spin records all morning long. So we'd hoop till about nine. We you know I get out there around eight, hoop until about ten, go to Steve's house, meet Hayden and the rest of those guys, hang out, listen to records, this, that and the other till about maybe two or three. Then I'd go home, let my parents know that I was still living, eat dinner, and then once the sun went down, and in D.C., weather was cool, the weather was perfect, we'd uh, go out, get together, and we'd walk to the basketball courts, and we'd play ball, and that was our summer, but Anita Baker and that album, Sweet Love, that was like an everyday fucking thing, man. We had to listen to Caught Up in the Rapture, we had to listen to You Bring Me Joy, we had to listen to three sixty five. We had to listen to that record, we that album, over and over and over and over and over again, man. We just couldn't believe how absolutely beautiful she was. Sorry, Janet Jackson. Sorry, Whitney Houston, who were the other contenders for the Nubian Queen in terms of uh the greatest of them all during that era of recording artists. Janet had her fans. That's what she came out with. Um, uh, oh, what did she come out with? Revolution, right? Uh, Terry, Terry Lewis and Jimmy Jam when she went to Minneapolis and uh, you know finally broke away from Michael and you know she had the revolutionary album and you know Whitney was doing her thing so those were the three contenders right it was Whitney it was Janet and it was Anita sorry hands down if you take a look at everything voice elegance beauty sorry sorry Whitney and that was before she met Bobby Brown it became a complete and utter nut job so sorry Whitney. Sorry, Janet. Anita was number one. As far as black beauty is concerned, we were just blown away about how beautiful she was, how elegant she looked, and how unbelievable she sang. It was... It was every time you would play her album, it was just mesmerizing. Absolutely fucking mesmerizing. So uh, that 1986 or something like that, from 1986 to about 1990 somewhere, nobody... Female version wise was touching Anita Baker. Ooh, I wish I could have touched her. But mm, I'm telling you, you know. But I'm telling you, Anita Baker. When this album came out, it it blew everybody's mind. And you talking about the hairstyles that she had back then, trendsetting with black women. It was uh man, she was a force of nature back then. Beautiful, elegant. Mm. Anita Baker, my woman was something else. In a huge part of my life, that was one of the few remember wins. Right in your childhood, right. I'm not putting it at the same, you know, level as where were you when Lennon was shot? Where were you when Reagan was shot? Where were you when I'm not talking about any like those significant uh, situations, but just like in your childhood, man, where were you when you first heard uh, "Sweet Love" by Anita Baker? Mm, 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 that was something else. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us, celebrating Black History Month. Special dedication to this podcast, this episode's feature athlete. Happy belated, happy 87th birthday to the great Bill Russell. His birthday was on Friday. The greatest winner and leader in sports history. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You know, you had this discussion. You've heard this discussion because after Tom Brady won his seventh championship ring, everybody's like, well, you know, what what are we going to do about Brady's legacy? Where are we going to put it? How can this now, how can we somehow elevate it even more? I mean, when him winning his seventh ring, I mean, maybe we can start going ahead and saying that he's the greatest football player of all time, regardless of era, regardless of position. So now we have to even elevate him past football players, and now start talking about other athletes and other sports. So the person that most people like to come up with, because you know most folks have zero interest or knowledge, intelligence, as far as sports history is concerned, they believe sports history is about, I guess sports history for most of them is about 2005, something like that. You know, anything past, especially anything past Michael Jordan, these folks know absolutely nothing, whether it's football, baseball, basketball, tennis, boxing, whatever. I mean, you might mention Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, maybe. Muhammad Ali, yes, but any of his opponents, uh, very few are going to be getting his opponents and the impact that he had and that type of thing. So, yeah, so when people are talking about greatest this in history, that dealing with sports, most of them can only go back to the start of the, 21st century. So the most popular name that's brought up is Michael Jordan, right? And oh my goodness, when we speak about the greatest of all time in basketball, it's got to be Michael Jordan. So if Michael Jordan's going to be the greatest basketball player who's ever lived, when well, of course Brady's the best football player who's ever lived, and they're relatively around the same generation, well, let's go ahead and, and uh, compare them, right? Wrong. <laughs> let's go ahead. That's the uh, that's a debate in terms of who's the greatest winner of all times. Brady or Jordan? Hold on. Hold on. When you start having that conversation because there's somebody there that supersedes any of those guys. So there's there was someone on Twitter when Brady won the seventh. Someone on Twitter, I'm not going to give out this Twitter name because he doesn't follow me, so screw him. That um, someone put Brady and Jordan's photos side by side. Both with their rings. Tom was seven. Jordan with six. Tom's with animated, you know, in terms of the number of rings in terms. Of, I mean, it wasn't like a real shot. It was just, you know, kind of like a special photo shot of the picture of Tom Brady and him with his fingers. And, you know, you had the seven rings and then you had Jordan, you know, side by side wearing his six rings. And the caption read, there's the table. And only these two can sit at it. And it had the emoji of a goat. Which means, you know, those are the two greatest of all times when you're speaking about sports. Well, Bill Russell, who knew that Bill Russell was a guy that, uh, you know, uh, was on social media. That paid attention to anything social media, right? Maybe it was someone associated with him or his son, grandson, whatever. But Bill Russell, on that Twitter page... Responded to the tweet by saying, you're getting closer. Along with that memorable image of him wearing all 11 rings that he won as an NBA player. The big grinny that he had. Remember that picture? If you don't look it up, it's a good picture. Him with his 11 championship rings and it responded by saying, you're getting closer. Beautiful, beautiful. Man won 11 championships in 13 seasons, including eight championships in a row. And if you think about him playing organized basketball... Only Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, a superstar like my man Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, can come close to the accomplishments that Bill Russell had in terms of winning. If you take a look at the totality of Kareem and everybody else who had played organized basketball, only Kareem can come close. Magic is there because Magic won a high school championship. He won a... a um, NCAA Championship. He won five championships in the NBA and he won a gold medal. So, he he's in a distant third. Second is probably Kareem because of what he did at Power Memorial. Then he won three NBA uh, He excuse me, he won three NCAA championships when he was at UCLA and then of course he won five, six? He won six championships when he was with the Los Angeles Lakers. Well, Bill Russell, let's take a look at this. At Mclinan's High School, he won back-to-back Northern California Tournament of Champion titles in high school. Then he went to the University of San Francisco, where he led the Dons to two consecutive NCAA championships in 1955 and 56. The team won 55 consecutive games. Then after the season, he went to the Olympics, where he won a gold medal, with uh, winning the U.S. National Basketball Team, uh, winning their gold medal in the 1956 Summer Olympics. Then... After that, he won 11 championships with the Boston Celtics. Everywhere that man went, not only did he win championships, he dominated. Sorry, Tom. How many championships did you win in Michigan? Sorry, Jordan. How many championships did you win in North Carolina? One. Because Patrick Ewing, uh, because of Sleepy Floyd decided to give uh, Dean Smith a break and let him win his first championship, so he threw he through the ball to James Worthy. You guys wouldn't have won the championship if it wasn't for James Worthy scoring 28 points. There you go. Six championships in the NBA. Cool. I think he won a championship when he was uh, at Laney High School in Wilmington, North Carolina. Cool. Doesn't reach Bill Russell. And as I mentioned before, look, football is different than basketball. So football doesn't have the Olympics. So I don't know if Brady won any championships when he was in high school. He didn't win any when he was in Michigan. But, you know, he's made up for it and then some in the NFL. <laughs> the NFL. And this is not to denigrate uh, Tom Brady or Michael Jordan. I mean, their accomplishments are fucking unbelievable. Tom Brady's is beyond unbelievable what he did. But let's kind of like slow the roll. We start kind of like, you know, drooling over Tom Brady and winning and not mention the fact that Bill Russell won 11 championship rings in 13 seasons. Yikes. (laughs) Was the linchpin of those championships. He didn't Mitch Richmond or John Sally or AC Green, a couple of those championships, aka sitting on the bench, barely getting time near the end of his career, being a mentor to the younger players and sitting on the bench while the other players did all the hard work. No, he wasn't AC Green and John Sally where he let Shaq and Kobe do all the hard work and he just sat back, collected the check in the championship. He wasn't Mitch Richmond who allowed Shaq and Kobe to do their thing. You know, this wasn't this wasn't that deal. This wasn't Nick Young with the um, Golden State Warriors, where you let a goofball like that get a championship ring. Wrong. nope, Not happening. So, Russell, as far as winning and being a leader, the greatest in all of sports. Now, you can maybe point back to some of the Yankee teams and, and baseball and those type of deals. Sorry. Those guys are winners, too. Mickey Mantle, Babe Ruth, and all those guys. Yeah, fine. Fine. Fantastic. Derek Gita fine, fantastic. They don't have the impact that a Bill Russell had in terms of the the winning is concerned because it's basketball. and baseball, you need a pitcher, you need a second baseman, you need an outfielder, you need a manager, you need a bullpen, you need a starting pitching, you need two or three solid starting pitching, all of those type of things. Basketball is a lot different, especially when Bill Russell was playing. And people who want to argue the, or, or you know, Diminish the accomplishments of Russell when comparing them with the modern day nat- modern day athlete because they sit there and say, "Oh man, bullshit, man. Russell, that guy was up there playing against six five white guys who weighed buck eighty five. The NBA was barely a league; it was basically minor league. There was only eight teams. Big fucking deal. They didn't have the talent pool. They didn't have the global recognition. The Bill Russell, when he was playing, they weren't getting the best players from Greece and from uh." And, you know, Eastern, other Eastern European countries and Australia, they weren't getting any of those type of players. The game of basketball hadn't evolved like it is right now. So, you know, Kobe winning five, Jordan winning six, LeBron winning four. Those are much more impressive than Bill Russell, who won 11 championships. Big fucking deal. You only had to play eight teams. Okay, fine. You want to go ahead and make that erroneous, ignorant uh, conversation, discussion point argument? All right, well, then I don't want to hear anybody talk about the greatest baseball player of all time being Babe Ruth. Why is it that Babe Ruth gets to pass for the era of when he played when we talk about the greatest baseball players of all time? If people who know the game, follow the game, love the game, and love sports in general always want to have these topics of discussion about who's the best, who's the best, who's the best. Who's the best in baseball, either they mention Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays, since he just died, people might mention Hank Aaron, but you don't get too far before someone brings up the name Babe Ruth, and they talk about his 714 home runs, and they talk about his dominance in the era that he played, And they talked about the fact that if he never picked up a bat, he would still be in the Hall of Fame because he was one of the best left-handed pitchers for the Boston Red Sox before he got traded to the New York Yankees and went to uh, being an outfielder and hitter full-time. Okay, fine. No doubt about it. Strong accomplishments. Good argument. All right. Well, let me ask you something. How can you denigrate or reduce the uh, excellence of Bill Russell because of the era that he played, the number of teams that he played, but yet still give praise and glory and respect to the accomplishments of Babe Ruth when Babe Ruth didn't even play against the best players of his era because of segregation. And I'll say it before and I'll say it again. Babe Ruth ain't hitting 714 home runs if he's playing against players from the Negro Leagues. If the Negro League players were able to come in and play in the major leagues, Babe Ruth wouldn't have been able to hit 714 home runs. He would have hit a gang of them. He would have hit a whole bunch. He would have been dominant. He would have been awesome. He would have been legendary great. He would have been a social icon and revolutionary and moving the society. He would have been all of the things. He would have been impactful, no doubt about it. But his dominance would have been mitigated because other great players Would have been coming into this league and he would have had to face him. I don't know. I wasn't around. There's no footage. Anybody who could debate this is probably or they are dead. But I would love to hear the argument, Babe Ruth or Josh Gibson, from those who saw both. I would love to hear the argument, Oscar Charleston or Honus Wagner. I would love to hear the argument of who was a better baseball player in terms of the Negro League players who were great and the Major League players who were great during that time. But we kind of just kind of either forget about it, uh, disrespect it, Don't give it enough credence, whatever you want to say when it comes to Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth. Well, if you're going to do the same shit about Babe Ruth as the greatest baseball player of all time, regardless of era and who he played against, how are you then going to go ahead and knock down Bill Russell because he only played in a league that had eight or nine teams? Oh, and by the way, guess what? That could be used for an advantage for Bill Russell. Because if you're talking about a league where there's only eight teams, there is no such thing as watered down. Because there's only eight teams. So the best of the best. Just imagine how much better the NBA would be and instead of having 30 teams, we got down to 24 or 22. Just think if we could get rid of the, I mean, I hate to say it, but this year they stink. So just for the sake of the argument, just say, for instance, we could get rid of Washington and Minnesota and Orlando. And um, who else stinks out loud this year? Um, let's think of three or four other teams and think about those players who are on that team right now. We could disperse them to the 24 or 22 remaining teams. Just think how much better. I don't have any horse in this race. I live in Vegas. We don't have an NBA basketball team, but so just think if the Sacramento Kings and the Washington Wizards and the Orlando Magic and, well, Miami's still going to be good. They've won four in a row, but if you could just, you know, slice off the bottom Six or eight teams, and put those players on the other twenty-four or other twenty-two. How much better would this game be to uh, to watch? So yeah, in some essence, it's not about. Well, he only played six to eight. You know, Bill Russell only played in a league that was uh, only eight teams because of the only played. In the league that was eight teams, he had to face Jerry West and Elgin Baylor and Walt Bellamy and Nate Thurman and Wilt Chamberlain and all of those Hall of Famers. He had to face them 8, 10, 12, 14 times a season. That's a little bit harder, ain't it? Ain't it? I would think so. So, I don't want to hear that nonsense about oh yeah, bullshit, this is nonsense, you know Tom Brady and Jordan and Kobe and LeBron and Jeter and Peyton Manning and all those guys, oh yeah, they're so much better than Bill Russell because of the era that they played him. That makes them better winners. I mean, if you want to debate better players, have at it. But as far as winning is concerned and leadership is concerned, I I don't know what the amount of teams being in a in a in a league has to do with that. So winning is winning. And winning is winning. Winning is winning. You understand what I'm saying, winning? Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about the legendary, the great Bill Russell. So, not only was this man tremendous, unbelievable, legendary, iconic, and American hero just based on sports, if it was just based on you know, the way he played the game of basketball, then, you know, eh, whatever. But the fact of what he did for civil rights, his activism in civil rights, this was the man in nineteen fifty nine, he became the first NBA player to visit Africa. As the decolonization movement was spreading across the continent, he stopped and visited Liberia in Ethiopia. In fact, in a classroom in Liberia, decent story that I saw on Bleacher Report, a student asked Russell why he was there, right? Well, Bill said that I came here because I believe that somewhere in Africa is my ancestral home. Well, I came here because I am drawn here like my man drawn to seek the land of my ancestors. When the students stood up and cheered, Russell broke down and cried. Man is deep. Man is deep. In nineteen sixty one, Lexington, Kentucky. Exhibition game. Right? The um, I think it was I think this was Lexington. Kentucky. It was Lexington Kentucky or somewhere in Indiana. Back in the 60s, right? Yeah, this is going to turn out well for him. So in 1961, Lexington, Kentucky, a restaurant, they wouldn't seat uh, Russell, Casey Jones, Sam Jones, Seth Sanders, all of the uh, black Celtic players right before an exhibition game. They were, that's right, they were um, They were looking to honor Frank Ramsey, white teammate, played at Kentucky, won a championship under a raging racist in Adolf Rupp. So... The Celtics went to Lexington, knew that we going to get a good crowd. This were the days where, you know, in the NBA, you played, you know, the exhibition games and you played the exhibition games like you played a regular season game. And you know, these guys weren't sitting out. These guys weren't playing 15 minutes and everything. I mean, Russell and the starters and everything, they were playing that stuff like it was game seven of the NBA championship. So, like I mentioned before, Lexington, Kentucky didn't have an NBA team, exhibition game. Everybody's like, woohoo, Frank's in town. So the mayor gave Russell the key to the city. Like, oh, we're so glad to have you. This and the other. This is wonderful. Well, later on that day, those guys went to get something to eat. The black players, the um, the uh, the restaurant was like, "No, nah, we don't serve niggers. Get out of here." You know, not not having it. Well, Bill Russell was like, "All right, guess what? We're going to boycott this game." It was a brown. It was a brown groundbreaking statement. At a time when you know ba- basically black players did the Laura Ingram, they just shut up, and dribbled. They were expected to look the other way at such discrimination. They were supposed to say, "Well, you know what? Hey, we're making good money and we're playing basketball and we've got privileges that uh, other black people don't have. So why are we to uh, why are we going to upset the apple cart? Why are we going to uh, you know say anything? We're just happy that the white man is allowing us to do this. So we're just going to shut up and just dribble. You know, kind of like what those." fucking jackasses want those guys and LeBron those guys to do today just shut up and dribble you make too much money anyway you're millionaires playing a child's game what are you what are you complaining about what are you kneeling for what are you wearing black lives matter for what do you care you're rich beyond rich shut up and play right there's another time that um Russell was given the key to the city I think this was in Indiana those guys went to get something to eat. The black players again, they got turned down. They got turned away. We don't serve niggers here. Get out of here, This any other. So later on that night, in the middle of the night, Bill Russell got up, found out where the mayor of the town lived, knocked on his door at around two or three in the morning. He answered and said, "Here's your key. If this is the way you're going to treat us, we don't want, we don't want, to, we don't want the key to your damn city. Get out of here." And as I mentioned before, back then that was considered. I mean, you know, that was considered uh, pretty heavy. For those guys to do something like that after the 1963 assassination of civil rights leader Medgar Evers in Jackson, Mississippi, Bill Russell flew down to lead the city's first integrated basketball camps, and it was a situation where the guy asked him, "Is like, you think it's okay? You think it's safe for Negro kids and white kids to play basketball together?" And Russell was like, "Sure, my kids play with white kids all the time. Nothing, nothing's happened to them yet." So he would doing that type of things. He was vocal in the civil rights movement. He was a voice in the civil rights movement. And he was the first black head coach in professional sports in which he won two of his titles, his, 11, his uh, uh, 10th and 11th title. He was the coach for three years and uh, won two, two, cha- uh, two championships. So Bill Russell has always been, i read one of his books, Yeah, I read one of his books years ago. Interesting guy. Very, very interesting guy. Wendell's World of Sports. The podcast, the Valentine's Day version of the podcast. Yours truly, Wendell Wallace. Interesting. Talking about Bill Russell and what he meant. The relationship that he had with Will Chamberlain. I mentioned before about how Bill Russell's the greatest... uh, Athlete, greatest winner in uh, sports, greatest leader in sports. And again, the argument, well, big fucking deal. He only played in a league that was eight teams. And he played against, you know, slow, underdeveloped six, eight white guys who couldn't jump. So big deal. He should have dominated. Well, um, he was playing against Wilt Chamberlain a lot. In fact, you can make the argument that that was the greatest one-on-one rivalry in professional team sports. It wasn't Ali Frazier. It wasn't Federer Nadal. It wasn't something like that. But just in terms of team sports' concerned, that was the greatest rivalry in sports history. From 1959 to 1969, they played against each other 142 times. Larry Bird and Magic didn't do that. Jordan and LeBron, no. Kobe and LeBron, no. D-Wade and Kobe, no. In a 10-year stretch, they played an average of 14 times a year. Wilt averaged 28 points and 28 rebounds, which was 14 points and 5 rebounds better than Bill Russell. Their teams met in the postseason 7 times only once, 1966-67 Eastern Conference Finals, Russell's first year as the coach of the Celtics, a team where Philadelphia went, what would they go, 67-13 and 13 or something like that at the time, set the record for most wins in the season. Russell's team, I think they won 60 or 62 his first year as a coach, but that was the year where Philadelphia had Hal Greer and and uh, Lucas Jackson and Chet Walker and uh, Wilt Billy Cunningham was coming off the bench, and before that era, I mean that team was loaded, and they beat Boston in six games. In fact, they won Game Six at the Convention Center in Philadelphia, one forty to one sixteen. Wilt for the series averaged a, t- a triple double. I mean, a real triple double. I'm talking like you know twenty four points. 24 rebounds and 12 assists. Um, So it was, you know, it was one of those rivals. But other than that, whenever Wilt and Russell met, whether it had been in the conference finals, in the championship, whether it was the 1964 NBA finals when Wilt was playing for the San Francisco Warriors, whether he came back and Havlicek steals the ball in game seven, in the year that Wilt scored 50 and they lost game seven to Boston In a close battle, I think 109 to 107. Whatever it was, Russell always came out on top. Against one of the most dominant big men in NBA history. One of the most dominant men to play in a sport. In Wilt Chamberlain. One of his best nights against uh, the Celtics. And uh, Russell. Wilt had a career. I think it's still an NBA. Yeah, it's got to be an NBA record still. He had 55 rebounds. One time against Russell in Boston. He did. He had a 44.43 rebound performance night against Bill Russell. I don't give a damn who you're playing against. I don't give a damn if... I don't give a damn if... Nah, that's too insensitive. I don't give a damn if LeBron James in his prime came on the floor against a freshman squad in Jerkwater, USA. And they said, you know what, instead of uh, instead of um, 32 minutes, we're going to play 60 minutes. And LeBron, go for it. <laughs> I don't care what the circumstances were. Anybody who has the ability to score 44 points and 43 rebounds and set a record where they had 55 rebounds in a professional game, I don't give a damn what the circumstances are. That's fucking unbelievable. And that's what Bill Russell had to go against and beat. Time and time and time again. That's historic, man. That's unbelievable, man. That's incredible, man. That's, you know, what the fuck? (laughs) You know, but oh yeah, Jordan did more or Jordan's greater winner or Jordan... What? Russell going up against Chamberlain. The greatest... The greatest argument that you could have right now, uh, when, you, when people talk about, let's go have the inane argument of which player was better, which player was better. Because we do that with Jordan and LeBron all the time now. Two guys who never played against each other, two guys from totally different eras. But you know, you go into the barber shops or you go on the first take or you go on the shit skin and the uh, shit and the skip show, and you say that bullshit, and it's like you know, you get these fevered arguments, whether it's on social media or whatever. Two guys, again, who never played against each other, played in two different eras, two different rules, two different worlds of basketball, right? Russell versus Chamberlain is a much more compelling conversation to have about who was better. Why? Because those guys actually played against each other! <laughs> Those guys in their prime playing against each other 14 times a year, conference championships, NBA championships, any scenario, all-star games doesn't really make a difference. Those guys played each other in their primes plenty and plenty and plenty of times in all different types of scenarios. So people talk about MJ and LeBron, Bird and Magic, LeBron and Kobe. Stop that bullshit if you're talking about the greatest uh, matchups of all time, or who's greater, or all that kind of stuff. Case closed in professional team sports. Wilt Chamberlain versus Bill Russell, and the league portrayed Russell as the good guy, and they portrayed Chamberlain as the bad guy because you know here's Bill Russell, six foot nine, going up against this behemoth, seven feet one or two, two hundred and eighty pounds, you know, Goliath, Wilt Chamberlain this unstoppable scoring machine, this physical freak. You know, so that's how the league, you know, uh, uh, portrayed it. You know, as Wilt Chamberlain said, no one likes Goliath. So he was the bad guy and Russell was supposed to be the good guy. But in retrospect, if you take a look at their personalities, Wilt Chamberlain was a much more nicer fella. He was a much nicer man than Bill Russell was. Bill Russell was prickly, arrogant, rude, uh, distrust of most most people, especially white people. He had a mercurial type of personality. He wouldn't sign autographs. You know, I, this was a guy who said that you know he owed the fans exactly what they owed him. Nothing. He was very you know dogmatic in his refusal to sign autographs, even for his peers and his teammates. There was a story on the uh, Sports Century about Bill Russell where Sash uh, Sanders, one of his teammates, right? He had this collage of pictures of him and his teammates, and, you know, so he wanted to go around the locker room and ask his teammates to, uh, you know, sign the uh, sign the picture, right? Bob Cousy, hey, you know, love your Satch, this, that, and the other. Sam Jones, Casey Jones, all signed, no problem. Hey, you know, this, that, and the other, Satch. Hey, hello, Satch Sanders, this, that, and the other. He got the Bill Russell, and Russell was like, you know I don't do that. And Sanders was like, come on, man, I'm not some kid in the street. You know, I'm not some clown you don't know. I'm your friend. I'm your teammate. I just want you to just put your autograph on my picture here. I'm not going to try to sell it or anything like that. And Russell was like, "Satch, you are my friend, and since you are my friend, you should know more than anybody not to ask me to sign an autograph because you know that I don't sign autographs for anybody. So <laughs> that's, I'm not signing your, uh, I'm not signing your uh, deal here. I'm not signing your picture, and don't get mad at me because you should already know this." We're friends and that other? I don't sign autographs. So that was Bill Russell. Call him prickly, call him an asshole, call him principal, whatever. But that was Bill Russell. And Wilt Chamberlain was the guy who just wanted to be friends with everybody, especially females. 100,000, baby. So was it 100,000 or 20,000 that he slept with? If he slept with 100,000, that would really be something. 20,000, I think it was. Or maybe he slept with 20,000 multiple times to add up to 100,000. How did that work anyway with Wilt? Where he, slept, where he said that he slept with 20,000 women. Did he sleep with 20,000 different women? Or did he basically have sex 20,000 times? And if he had sex 20,000 times, how many were, how many, what was the number in terms of women? Did he have sex 20,000 times with 18,000 women? 20,000 times he had sex with 5,000 women? So, for instance, if he had sex with 10,000 women 20,000 times, that means each woman that he had sex with, what, 200 times? Woo! Women take women spreading their legs open that many times? Even in the love-peace era of the 60s? Woo! And that man never fathered any children? Man, the modern-day Sam Malone of his time? Goodness gracious sakes alive. Getting back to Bill Russell here on Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast. Your host, Wendell Wallace. so glad that you could be with us. So, yeah, speaking about Bill Russell, he didn't hide his opinions about uh, race race relations and his opinion that Boston was uh, basically a bigoted place. And when people would sit there and be like, oh, 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 well, Tom Heisen told the story when Bill Russell was thinking about buying a house or when Bill Russell bought a house in a neighborhood in Boston, I guess a suburb or whatever, Newton, Massachusetts. They gave him a big banquet and it was like, oh, we're so happy that you're here. This is the other, this is the other. And when it was time for Russell to get up and speak, he broke down and cried. And he said, this place right here, this neighborhood, this community right here is where I want to spend the rest of my life. Newton, Massachusetts. Well, it wasn't long after that, that someone broke into his house vandalized, smashed all his trophies, left racist graffiti on his walls, and defecated in his bed. What was Bill Russell supposed to think? Oh, hey, that's okay, fine, no big deal, this, that, and the other. He said that I played for the Boston Celtics, not for the people of Boston. And don't blame him. Do not blame him. If, 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 you, if you knew Bill Russell, and if you were good with Bill Russell back then, you were golden. He would do anything for you, but just in terms of anybody outside of his of his stratosphere of his universe of people that he trusted wasn't happening was not happening at all in terms of him being cordial because why he grew up in an era where of course you didn't trust anybody because at that time white folks really didn't have any trust of him. Or white folks weren't going to do anything for him. White folks just figured that he was just a nigger who needed to play basketball and know his place. And Bill Russell was not, was not going to be dealing with that bullshit in any way, shape, or form. Discrimination, disrespect, no, not Bill Russell. Not Bill Russell. So the militant, angry black man, you know, if you you stood up and, and... defended yourself back in those days you were the militant angry black men and in some ways it still holds true today 50 60 years later but of course not as not as bad as it was back then but yeah Bill Russell was a huge huge uh, person in the civil rights movement in others and changed the game of basketball it used to be a game where you didn't play it in the air you know you played it on the ground. White man's game. You played it on the ground. Bill Russell, along with Elgin Baylor, came in and introduced verticality. Introduced um, uh, hang time and all those type of things and changed the game of basketball. But as I mentioned before, Bill Russell was more than just a basketball player. Guy was was, uh, an American hero for what he did. His help with the civil rights movements, his strength, his character. I'm telling you, one thing before we go ahead and I uh, play my next slow jam, one thing that uh, those across the tracks and the other communities should know when I'm telling you these stories about these historic, legendary, iconic uh, American, black Americans, these heroes, you take a look at their inner strength, their character, the ability to forgive everything that they went through, everything that this society put them through. That that should give you that should give you a heads up. A wake up that man. Black folks, my community, man, we are some strong strong folks. Especially if you're speaking about the nonsense that's been going on with this virus. The nonsense that was going on with the election. And you see certain people from across the tracks, the way they acted, the way they melted down, the way they behaved, they showed their character. They showed their inner strength. They showed what they were all about. When you had these fucking idiots storming state capitals, because God forbid you have to wear a mask and you have to keep distance. And these fucking idiots are too stupid to realize that, that this is for the betterment and good of all. They were too ignorant. They were too selfish. Welcome to my country. And you, you saw the way those folks reacted. Let, let's see those same people go through the same bullshit every day that black folks go through in this country. Not just present, but also in the past. Man, we're trying to change the future. So one thing that you can take away from my conversations about these great, great Americans who happen to be of African-American descent. I hate that shit, they're Americans. <laughs> but um, one thing that you should be like, damn, proud of, is like, wow, just imagine if we gave the black community a true chance or an equal chance. No wonder y'all are scared, we probably did, we probably take over everything. No wonder y'all wanna keep us down and keep us oppressed and keep us ignorant and keep us blind to uh, what we are and what we can be, man. But uh, that would be something else. That would be something else. So special dedication going out to the American hero and icon, Bill Russell. Welcome back to Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. So many things to talk about. So many emotions, so many memories, so many feelings of love, tenderness, satisfaction. Special dedication going out to all the distant lovers tonight. Whether your man or woman is overseas fighting for this country that we live in, whether he's far, far away being at school, a job, running from paying child support, whatever it is, just remember that distant lover somewhere tonight, today, this afternoon, the moaning, day after day, week after week, month after month, distant lover, lover. Wendell's World of Sports, the Valentine edition, coming out today. This is going to be the last segment one more time, as I mentioned before. Enough of me talking. Enough of me talking about sports. Enough of me talking about the NFL. Enough of me talking about what's going down in the world of sports. It's time for you after this segment is over. I want to keep this short. I want to keep this real short because it's about time that you start spending some time with the one you love. Start spending some time. But the one that's all yours. The one that you love more than anything else. Your mate. Your soul mate. Let's see if you can do that, shall we? Let me go ahead and start talking about the NBA. Don't really have too much to say about it here on Wendell's World and Sports Podcast. <sighs> um, I don't know, man. I'm just got through watching the Brooklyn Nets beat up on the um Beat up on the Golden State Warriors. Not too much of a game. Bad matchup for the Warriors. But um, from what I saw as I was recording this, the um, the, war- the um, Nets look good. They look really good. So now as I'm taking a look here at the uh, standings here in the Eastern Conference, I still see that the Philadelphia 76ers are still at the top of the heat. Joel Embiid is still playing some pretty good ball, even though they lost a heartbreaking game to Portland on the road. Portland's been playing a lot better. But um so far so good with Philadelphia sitting there at 18 and 9. Milwaukee. Tough losses as they go on this road trip. They've lost two in a row. They're now sixteen and ten, a game and a half. And look, we're what, not even slightly past the quarterway mark of the season. So there's a lot of basketball to be played. There still is the trade deadline to be um to uh come up against so a lot of things could happen between then and with the COVID situation. We don't know what teams are going to be decimated. We don't know what teams are going to be uh, scot-free in terms of dealing with the COVID. There's been some teams so far that have been heavily hit. Games have been postponed. We don't know if they're going to be made up or not, depending upon the situation um, in the standings later on in the season. The Washington Wizards, my Washington Wizards come to mind. But, um, you know, right now... You got Philadelphia playing well Embiid is at an MVP pace. You know who else is putting up similar numbers as he did last season? Giannis Antetokounmpo. And last season Giannis Antetokounmpo won the MVP. But we talk about Kevin Durant, we talk about Giannis. Excuse me. We talk about uh Joel Embiid, we talk about uh Nikola Jokic, we talk about LeBron James and we don't mention we don't mention Giannis. And it's because you take a look the Milwaukee Bucks, as of right now, are a little bit above meddling uh, in the standings right now. Giannis, again, having a similar type of season that he had last season. He hasn't improved greatly enough for us to be uh, speaking about it. And when you take a look at what LeBron is doing, and you take a look at the narrative that LeBron can put down in terms of why he needs to be the MVP, why he's fighting for the MVP, when you speak about the narrative, when you speak about the storyline that can come out of someone like a Joel Embiid, who uh right now is playing at a high level. Giannis is old news in terms of MVP. We have officially taken Giannis Adinokounmpo for granted because he won it for the past two years. His story has been told. Moving on to something else. We have a very short attention span in this country, so it's like moving on to uh, something else. Brooklyn, as I mentioned before, I think played the best game of the season against the Golden State Warriors. Now, at the beginning of the season, I think the start of the season they blew out the Warriors also. So if this is a situation where it's just a bad matchup for the Warriors and a strong matchup for Brooklyn. James Harden playing great offensive basketball when he had the full complement of players with him, namely Kyrie and KD, assuming the point guard role. Um, and they were mentioning it on the telecast that the best playmaker out of all these guys has uh, are, is um, James Harden. So, I think Harden is starting to settle into a place where, look, my days of scoring 30-plus points are over. My mentality of putting up a lot of shots and trying to take over, uh, the scoring is now over. What we saw in Houston, the way that he played in Houston, for the most part, that's now over. I think he recognizes the scoring machines that he has to his right and to his left in Kyrie and KD. So, I think James is going to um, be... uh, it's going, to, it's going to accept the role of him, you know, being the guy that's going to facilitate. But when he needs to take over, he's going to be able to take over, and he's definitely shown that uh, he's willing and able to take over when necessary. So look, you've got Boston, they're 13 and 12. Kimba Walker starting to come back. Jalen Brown playing at an all-star level. Indiana, 14 and 13. They're still getting their stuff together. Charlotte, they're more of a Lamelo Ball story. The Knicks. Right now, middling, thirteen and fifteen. Still playing some decent ball under Thibodeau. Toronto still getting used to the idea, or still getting used to their surroundings. Playing in Tampa, they're fourteen and twelve. Miami with the return of Jimmy Butler, they've won four in a row row to improve to eleven and fourteen. On the other hand, Atlanta lost three in a row. They're down to eleven and fifteen. Even though I will say this, I was, I was one of these. I wouldn't call a hater. But I was, um, you know, a little, little side-eyed when it came to Trey Young, just in terms of how he could fit in, just in terms of the chemistry with his other teammates because his ball usage is so much. When I saw them play the other day, I think they it was Wednesday, was I forgot what day it was, but they were playing Dallas. And uh, it was a good game. Dallas um, won, the, won the basketball game. But I like the way that uh, Trey Young was playing in terms of his distribution of the ball, the way that he was trying a lot harder on defense, the way that he was setting screens, the way that he was willing to take charges. I think those are the type of things that the players, his teammates, are going to be be more receptive of. So when he pulls up from 35 feet, you know, players on this team aren't going to be so, the shoulders won't be slumping because A... He has a pretty decent chance of making it, and B, the way that he's playing all around, the effort that he's giving both on the offensive and defensive side of the ball, doing the dirty work, willing to pass the ball, setting up guys for good shots, and being a leader on that squad because he was mic'd up, so I was hearing some of the stuff that he was saying, the encouragement and that type of thing. I think that uh, it's going to bode well for Atlanta, but... 11 and 15 lost three games in a row. They got to turn that around. And then you got teams like Chicago, Orlando, Cleveland's lost six in a row, whatever, Detroit, and then the Washington Whiz Whiz. Going into the Western Conference here, the final edition, the Valentine's Day edition of Wendell's World in Sports, with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. Utah still. Holding Strong, best record in the NBA, 21-5, and five, winners of six in a row. Saw them play. Who did they play? Who did they play? I saw them play. I saw them play. I forgot who they played, but uh, they were looking good. Who did they play? Boston, shit. Yeah, I saw them play against Boston the other night. And uh, looking good, man. I, I-, I love Joel Inglis' game. Love his game. I mean, this is a guy, you know, not not a master of one trade, but a jack of them all. The guy is so... I guess you can say, like when Golden State was rolling, rolling he plays like the um, Draymond Green role on the offensive end of the basketball side. He's so smart. He knows how to set up the guys. He knows when to shoot. He knows when to pass. He knows when to make the right play. He reads the pick and roll well. Joe Ingles is a guy who I just really enjoy playing. Donovan Mitchell is still playing at a high level. I still think that he's... 6th or 7th in terms of top 6 or 7 players when you speak about MVP. Not too many people bring his name up, but I think that uh, when you're the best player on the best team in the NBA record-wise that you should get that type of consideration. Rudy Rudy Gobert finally has accepted his role as being a shot blocker, rebounder, finisher at the rim. He's not trying to be Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He's not trying to be Will Chamberlain. He's not trying to be that offensive center that you can dump it down. He's going to score. That new contract I get and all that guaranteed money will kind of convince them to say, yeah, you know what, rebounding, blocking shots and scoring around the rim, yeah, I think I can handle that. I'm not getting paid extra for uh, points scored, so yeah, I think I'm can. I i think I'm cool with that. So Utah had the best record. Still think the best team in the league, though, is the Los Angeles Lakers. Saw them put the pedal to the metal on yesterday and uh, decimate Memphis in the second half. And they came back against another team, I forgot. Oklahoma was it? Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City took them to overtime, but another situation where it was like the Lakers got serious. Anthony Davis is coming back from an Achilles injury. LeBron's still playing at a high level. The defense is still playing at a high level. I think the Lakers are the best team in the NBA. I know Utah has the best record, but my question for Utah is going to be when the playoffs come around. And let's just say that uh, the teams, the Lakers and the Jazz meet in the Western Conference Finals. Let's just let's just fast forward that far down the road. Who has the experience? Who has the playoff experience for the Jazz that's going to equate what the Lakers have? And more importantly, if the tandem of LeBron and AD is relatively healthy, who on Utah are you going to bring out there? The two best players, what would you say would be maybe... Mitchell and, I don't know, Mike Connolly? I don't know, Rudy Gobert? That situation, are you going to be able to, uh, seriously be able to uh, face LeBron and AD? Which tandem, maybe it's Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray, but I mean, I'm, I'm thinking here, I'm looking here, I'm wondering here, which tandem is better than LeBron and AD? You could maybe say Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, but until... Paul George does something in the playoffs. I don't give a damn what he does in the regular season. That man can shoot forty that man can shoot sixty eight percent from the three point line and average thirty and twenty. I don't care. Until he does something in the playoffs, playoff P is the guy I'm going to be focusing on. Not Paul George when it comes to playoff contributions. But, you know, mental issues in the bubble and having to deal with that. Messed with him a little bit. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens because that's not gonna happen. Phoenix is uh, playing well, 16 and 9. Portland making a nice little comeback there. They've won three games in a row. They're at 15 and 10. A surprise team, San Antonio, which blew out the Atlanta Hawks the other night. Young squad. They're at 15 and 11. Uh, Denver making a move, 14 and 11. I think when everything is all said and done, Denver is going to be right there with the Clippers and the Lakers. If I'm taking a look at a team that might slide just a little bit. Maybe it's the Jazz. Maybe it's the Suns. Who knows? Like I mentioned before, COVID injuries all play a role. Golden State hanging around. They've had to deal with COVID issues and injury issues. They're at 14 and 12 um, now. 14 and 13 after getting blown out. Dallas starting to make that move. Winners of four straight. Luka, the last couple of games have been playing well. When he hits that three-point shot, I mean, there ain't too much you can do about that. Saw that game with the New Orleans. The other night, New Orleans came in playing pretty good basketball. But um, if you're going to shoot the three-point shot like Porzingis was doing on Friday and what Luka was doing after the first quarter of being the uh, uh, dispute, what the word I'm looking for, being a ball passer, then, you know, hey, Dallas is going to be pretty tough to beat for most squads. And then you got Memphis and Sacramento. New Orleans, as I mentioned before, they were doing pretty well, but they've lost two straight. Houston's now lost five straight. they come back down to earth along with Oklahoma City and Minnesota, who's horrendous. So yeah, man, that's about it for me. I'm going to end this podcast right now. I'm going to end this podcast right here. So I am just going to say, hey, man, as I end this bad boy, really, for for real, enjoy your uh, thanks, Thanksgiving. Enjoy Thanksgiving when November comes, but as long as we're in February, enjoy your Valentine's Day. You know, as I mentioned before, be with the one that you love. And I know Valentine's Day is kind of like commercial bullshit. Every day with your spouse, every day with your mate should be Valentine's Day. People who have been married 10, 25, 50 years are looking at me right now saying, man, every day should be Valentine's Day. Man, what motherfucking planet is this clown living in? But what I'm saying is, hey, for those who do have a mate, for those who have found their soulmate, be thankful. Be grateful. Because there's plenty of those who don't have one and have maybe lost it through COVID or other types of tragedies and who are looking and who are searching and who are lonely during this time because they don't have what you have. So do that. So there we go. So I'm going to end this Valentine's Day episode of Wendell's World of Sports with my favorite love song of them all of them all i believe in you and me by the four tops and the main singer my man my hero as far as singing is concerned the great the legendary the awesome levi Stubbs. i believe in you and me i believe that we will be in love eternally as far as i can see You will always be the one. The best love song out there. So happy Valentine's Day. Love, peace, unity, harmony, and especially love. Mr. Stubbs, for all the lovers out there, if you would please.
1: I believe in you and me I believe that we will be In love eternally As far as I can see You will always be the one For me Oh, yes, girl. I believe in dreams again I believe that love will never end And like the river finds the sea I was lost Now I'm free I believe in you And me I will never leave your side I will never hurt your pride When all the chips are down I will always be around Just to be right where you are My love Oh, I love you, girl I will never leave you out, I will always let you in, to places no one's ever been,
2: deep and can't
1: you see? To feel the way I do, but I would play the fool forever just to be with you forever. I believe in miracles, love's a miracle, and baby come um, true and mm-hmm.